Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcast in Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a brand new episode. As you can tell from the title, we're talking about Captain America, the Winter Soldier. But you can tell from the prefix of it, it's called the Russo Retrospective. Yes, because I'm going to be going through all the Russo Brothers directed uh, movies as part of the MCU. Now, the reason why we're do- I'm doing this is because my co-host, who I will remain nameless for at least for a couple more seconds, he and I want to talk about something MCU related and... Because he is such a Marvel fan. He's like a cat to catnip. When you mention Marvel, he'll come a-running. And when he comes a-run, he'll say on your left as he passes you by. And he is the... <laughs> he is the host, uh, co-host of Fans Without Borders and Marvel Squadcast, Mr. Brent Clark. How are you doing, Brent? I am doing great. Thank you very much. And you are absolutely right. On your left. <laughs> Like I like I don't know if we should have that as a counter uh, throughout not this show but all the shows that we're gonna be doing together here is like how many people we have to say like on your left uh, and other other phrases that will be coming up throughout here I don't I don't want to say them all right here right now because I think that'd just be cheating um, but it will be it's gonna be a fun ride if I if I do say so myself I I am looking forward to it you suggested this idea as hey we could talk about these movies and i'm like okay well great not that i need to but you just gave me a good excuse to watch these movies again and i in the case of the winter soldier i had not rewatched it since my in-game rewatch so early 2019 you know and i'm like yeah it's it's time it's time to bust out to bust this movie out i love this movie so i'm absolutely excited to talk about this very nice. And like I said, we're talking about Captain America the Winter Soldier, so let's jump into our review of it right now. Okay, now what was before we get into the movie itself? Um, did you have any experience with the the character of the Winter Soldier from the now legendary Ed Brubaker run in the comics? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, let me actually take it back just slightly before that. That run started in like two thousand four, two thousand five, and I have I, I don't know why. But I've always been drawn to the sidekick or the teen heroes. So, you know, like Spider-Man started as a teen. I love Spider-Man. Bucky, the sidekick to Captain America. I love Bucky. Not that the main hero is bad by any means. It's not. Captain America is great. But, you know, it's always been that way. Robin, Nightwing, Superboy, Supergirl. The the sidekick heroes or the whatever you want to call it, the junior versions of heroes. I've always been drawn to those characters. And there was always a few characters in comic books that stayed dead. Like the, the mainline continuity version was dead and it didn't change. Uncle Ben, Jason Todd and Bucky Barnes. Well, Ben is still dead. The other two are alive and well. And I remember when the winter soldier uh, started coming out, I did not actually start the run like as it was coming out. I, 
I want to say the first or like maybe like 12 to 13 issues were out before I picked one up and like I picked up the trade and or I picked up all the single issues at one time, something like that. And I just loved it. The story they that he told that Ed Brubaker told here with Bucky and they talked about how he was more than just this like happy go lucky sidekick kid in, in the middle of a world war. He was Captain America's secret weapon where he would actually go in, like, sneak in behind enemy lines, taking people out, effectively assassinating them. And I remember a little bit of controversy around that because it was this really dark take on what was happening, but the whole point was kind of like, it's war. It's the war. It's not exactly going to be pretty. And they really showed that, like, Brubaker really showed this different side of Bucky with that, and it really worked for me. Well, I loved it, and so... Going through that comic, like when you find out that the Winter Soldier, who just at this point is just this really awesome character design, I, I love the look of him. You find out that's Bucky, it's just like a holy crap moment. They're actually doing it. They figured out a way to bring him back, and they figured out a way to bring him back in a way that works. Like it didn't feel cheap. It didn't feel like okay. Do do you know how Jason Todd? originally came back in the mainline continuity. This would be before the new 52. So we're talking post-crisis. Post-crisis, but before the new 52. Um, As a red herring in Batman Hush? That was kind of what put the idea out there, and they realized people actually liked the idea. But the way he actually came back was a part of the Infinite Crisis storyline that involved Superboy Prime, the the Superboy, but of what was supposed to be the real Earth of our Earth, punching the walls of reality and changing what was the reality. And I always thought that was incredibly stupid. I love the story overall, but the Superboy Prime punch I always just thought was absolutely asinine. And that's what brought Jason Todd back to life. He comes back to life in his grave and he climbs out and so on and so forth. Now, I think in the current post-New 52 slash Rebirth era, I think they've kind of changed some of that or they just kind of hand-washed it away like they did so much continuity. But to me, that felt cheap. What they did with Bucky, what Brubaker did with Bucky here did not feel cheap at all, where basically he got his own versions of a super soldier serum. He was put into suspended animation, and he was only brought out every so many years to perform a mission or two, which was typically an assassination or two. And then he was put back on ice again. And that's why he has aged, but nowhere near as much as he should have for somebody who is, you know, like in their upper teens in world war two. But I do find it interesting that you bring up Jason Todd because it definitely seems like it's, I don't want to say it's aping a Jason Todd kind of story, but it seems like, okay, a former sidekick coming back as a murderous badass that the main hero has to contend with seems to check off both the Red Hood and the Winter Soldier to a T. Yeah, and honestly, I would have to, they came out so close to each other, I would have to Google it to see which one was first. I want to say Jason Todd, but I could be wrong about that. Maybe maybe it was Bucky. But no, you're absolutely right. Like The similarities are so much there, and I'm just like, I'm sorry, this is no slight against the Jason Todd character. He's not my favorite Robin by any means, but he, I'm fine with the character. I, I think he's awesome on the Titans TV show. But I just think the way they did it with Bucky was so much more compelling. But Bucky is in a world of Captain America, Super Soldier Serum, stuff like that. 
Jason Todd, I mean, he really isn't. I mean, Lazarus Pitt was kind of used once he sort of came back up out of his grave to help finish, like, reforming him. But, no, again, he's ultimately the result of the Super Bowl Prime Punch, which is about as cosmic as you could possibly get for a street-level Gotham-based vigilante. But, but it seems like A plus B equals Q. That's what they kind of, like, how you set that up there. Like, Superboy Prime punching the, the walls of reality to mm-hmm. that ends up resurrecting a dead sidekick. It, it definitely seems kind of like a Mad Libs-type scenario how we get to that conclusion. Yeah, it. Not, I mean, again, I like that event quite a bit. Not that wasn't exactly its finest hour. But so then we've got the Winter Soldier comic book, like the Winter Soldier in the comic book. And, you know, the art, most of the art for that run was done by Steve Epting. I was a fan of his. I first discovered him back in his Crossgen days when he was on Sigil. A book called Sigil Crossgen was a, a publisher that I never miss an opportunity to bring up because I just love them in the early 2000s. And they sadly went under because they grew a little, in my opinion, they grew a little too big too fast. But that's where I first discovered Epting's art. Well, post Crossgen, the next big thing I saw him in was this run. And so now we've got this incredible writer, this art that I absolutely love, and they're telling this story that, like, as I'm reading it, I know this is one of the greatest Captain America stories of all time, and it is my personal favorite Captain America comic book of all time, the Winter Soldier books. Which is high praise. I mean, so especially somebody who is a huge Marvel. You're, I don't want to use the derogative term like Marvel zombie, but... Is somebody who's a Marvel fanatic to say that, like, oh, you can point to there definitively to say this is my favorite Captain America story, speaks volumes of the book. Yeah, it's I, – I would highly encourage anyone who's read it to read it or anyone who hasn't read it, I mean, to go out and read it. It's available pretty cheap nowadays in, in trades or on Comixology or Marvel Unlimited. It, if you haven't read it, it's it's awesome. It's truly a great Captain America story. You've got Red Skull. You've got a Cosmic Cube. You've got, ultimately, you've got Hydra. You've got stuff with AIM. It's just, they hit lots of different, you've got Crossbones as part of all this. Lots of different Captain America stuff. And just this new, wonderful package. Which I think I need to check out. Because A, like, just because of all the high praise you have just spoken about for the book, but the fact that I'm a Ed Brubaker fan because of his run on Gotham Central. Mm-hmm. Yep. And like the, how my history with Bucky Barnes as a character is like, I always, I, I maybe it's just kind of dismissive, but I always thought like, Oh, he's Captain America's Robin. Um, I think that's fair. I think that's incredibly fair. Like I, that is the perfect description for him. He right. I mean, right down to his look, like the costume is different, but you know, the domino mask and stuff. It's like, if you, if you were to put Bucky in a Robin costume, you would just think you were looking at Robin, right? It's like, they were very similar builds. They were drawn very similarly. I think that's a very fair comparison because the first time I ever laid eyes on him was like this $150, 12 inch statue of Bucky from the 1940s where like you just described, like with the domino mask, the blue shirt, the red pants and the red gloves. Like that's like, that's the image that comes to mind when I think of Bucky Barnes, at least initially. And so when this movie was announced, like, Oh, the Witcher Soldier does Bucky Barnes. Like that, that uh, twist that happens at the end of the second act of this movie for a lot of people, like I knew that like, Oh, the Winter Soldier was Bucky Barnes. And, but it wasn't like one of those things like people, I wasn't like one of those people standing in line. Like, Hey, did you hear, do you know that, uh, Bucky Barnes is the Winter Soldier? 
I know. I didn't know. I, it's it's amazing. I, I, I luckily enough was not that that kind of a, a spoiler jerk like that. So like the, I was just waiting for the reveal. But I, that's what it made the it made the teasing the journey in this movie that much more uh, satisfying when it finally does happen. And going into this, um, what was your expectations of it after seeing Captain America in his first solo movie, the first Avenger, and then the first Avengers movie? Well, so when, when I saw First Avenger, I mean, the big thing coming out of First Avenger, Captain America is, he's a corny cheeseball character kind of, right? You know, the uh, for your country, American dream, always do the right thing like you expect a G.I. Joe promo at the end of him talking type. Like, that's been his character. And really, I think that's still true. I mean... The, the the motivational speeches that that guy gives are unparalleled. But the big thing for First Avengers was like, okay, so you've changed the relationship with Bucky pretty significantly in that you've made not only is Steve a scrawny little guy, but Bucky is like they're they're much more comparable in age, and he is physically much bigger, much fitter. And Steve has a jealousy of him because Bucky gets to go serve in the war, and that's all Steve wants to do more than anything else. You know, he he doesn't like bullies; he wants to go after bullies. And I just thought they nailed the dynamic. Like, yeah, it was different; it was updated for what was that at that time, two thousand eleven. But I thought they did a really great job with it, and then. I'm watching Captain America, the first Avenger, and you see Bucky fall off that train. And I have in the back of my mind, and I didn't know like if they had a six-picture six deal with Sebastian Stan or anything like that at the time. I, I didn't know. but So it's like in the back of my mind, they could totally do this if they want. Like He, he could come back. And then that movie ends, and it ends with you know teasing the Avengers. And you go into the Avengers, and you have Captain America adjusting to the modern world, to 2012 at that time. And honestly, like for me, I, I didn't even think about Bucky in Captain America, like or in, in relation to Captain America during the Avengers. But then when they announced the Winter Soldier, I was absolutely floored, absolutely floored. And not just because, hey, this is my favorite Captain America comic story arc that they're now going to adapt, but it's it was 2014 was a, a big year from like Marvel planting their flag that we're not just looking at the old comic stuff. We're looking at more recent stuff because again, the Brubaker run when winter soldier happened was 2005, 2006 in that area, right? Well, the guardians of the galaxy came out in 2014 also. And no, the guardians of the galaxy as a team, as a name, as a property is significantly older, but that actual team that was used in the movie is from the early two thousands. Again, I'd have to verify the actual date, but it's from the early 2000s when that team became like the team in in the comics. And so it's like this was Marvel really planting their flag that we're not going to just look at the old stuff. We're not just willing to look at things that have been around for 30 years and more. Yeah, sure, we're going to absolutely mine that material, but we're willing to mine the more recent stuff as well. 2014 was a big year for that. That's for sure. And for my uh, from my perspective, it was curious here because... I know my co-host, Mike Wilson, uh, he has issues with the first Avengers movie because he thinks Captain America being truly Captain America in that movie is a montage with him and the Howling Commandos. Like, what you expect from a Captain America movie is boiled down to a montage. 
when he finally has the shield and everything. Oh, and then, like, the only other big beats is, like, losing Bucky and he... He falls off a cliff because, it, but and if you go by movie and comic book uh, logic, he's not dead. We didn't see a body. He's not dead. Even when we see a body, they're not dead, especially when it comes to this movie. Um, and then when it, like, jumping all the way to the present, like, I remember at the end of the first Avenger, when he walked, he runs out into the middle of Times Square, like, it took an adjustment for me. Like, oh, I guess Captain America being in the 40s is... Well, that was it, and so, like to say, I was going, I was a little trepidatious going into the the first Avengers movie, um, would be kind of an understatement because, I'm like, hey, Captain America was probably my favorite of the build up movies to this point, uh, character wise. I think structurally and movie wise, I think the first Iron Man is the best of them leading up to the first Avengers, and so I'm like, okay, let's see how they deal with Captain America and the first Avengers movie. Um, and I thought Captain's uh, personality was perfect, especially planting seeds between he and Stark going to have to butt heads. And eventually they did four years later. We'll get to that in the next episode. Oh yeah. Those, the, all those seeds could go back to 2012. And that is just, you're right. We'll talk about that more with the Nixon Solomon of this, but that is just one of those things that in my opinion, the MCU is absolutely incredible at doing is laying groundwork and then going forward and paying it off later. Now these movies have the advantage of all the way from the first Avenger through this entire uh, thing of always, of all being written by uh, Marcus and McFeely, the same two writers, but the, that groundwork that they laid there in the middle of that Avengers movie that you later see come to a head in the captain America, a uh, captain America movie. Beautiful. Right, I mean, like, obviously, like, the first Avengers movie was written by... The first two Avengers movies were written and directed by Whedon, but Mm -hmm. that Whedon and Marcus McFeely were on such a... They were on the same wavelength of the characterization with these characters um, to the point that, like, it didn't feel like... It didn't feel jarring from movie to movie. Now, I know some people have an issue between Cap's personality and worldview winter soldier versus civil war which we can kind of get into in that movie but so i'm like okay the avengers like was so awesome and like it was it was my favorite movie of that year even though the dark Knight rises came out i saw the avengers i think five times in theater uh mm-hmm. no um i saw it actually now thinking about it, i saw both five times in theaters and now thinking about it um and so well it was a good year let's for movies i mean for comic book movies, I mean, yeah, I I didn't see Dark Knight Rises as many times as I saw Avengers, but I definitely saw that in theaters, and I I mean, I still think that's a great movie. I know it's got its detractors, I like it. Sue me. Yeah, I, I remember like it was the last day of my uh, first year of at college, like it was like the very last day of classes, and it was the first. It's like what the in a SUNY Oswego called the Bridge Street Run, which is literally a bar crawl that you go to the furthest end of the town and you crawl your way back to the campus. And so my friend JD and I are trying to get out of Oswego to go to a town called Cicero half an hour away because that's the only place showing it in non 3D, the first Avengers movie. And I was just like being wowed as we got back into Oswego when uh, pandemonium had taken place and people were like falling into the river that runs through Oswego. And we were just like, we don't care. This is taking a long time to get back to campus. We're just so wowed by the first Avengers movie. And so when it came to Winter Soldier, uh, what was your experience uh, like seeing it for the first time? I know before we started recording, you said 
remind you of 3D. Yeah, so I, uh, when the Avengers came out, at least my local theaters was doing a, a marathon of all the Phase 1 movies up into it, and it didn't work out for me to go, and I really liked the idea. When the Winter Soldier came out, uh, there was, I, again, I liked the idea of seeing the prior movies. There, the only type of thing that I saw in my area was a double feature of First Avenger and Winter Soldier. And so my dad and I went to that, and it was only available in 3D. And I will just tell you, I'm not a 3D fan. I find it, at best, a lateral shift, at worst, distracting. And so, like, every now and then, oh, hey, that was a cool 3D shot. But most of the time, it does not enhance my viewing experience. And the thing I think about when I go back to that night is when Captain America, the first Avenger, started. My dad and I, who never go to 3D movies, like... Prior, other than that, I think Avatar is the last time I saw a movie in 3D. Um, other than, And so it's like, we totally forgot it was 3D. And we just thought the movie was blurry and the picture was blurry. And we're looking at you like, what is going on? Why? And it's the first Avenger, thankfully. So we had seen it, but it's like, why is it doing this? And I felt like such a moron <laughs> when I was like, oh my gosh, the stupid glasses that are on top of my head right now. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, now the movie looks a lot better because I'm watching it the way I'm supposed to. Thankfully, I did not have that problem with the with the Winter Soldier because I was not going to make that mistake a second time. Well, I understand how you feel because I can lose things right in front of me. Uh, like I just come from a family of people where it's kind of forgetful. My dad will lose his glasses on his face, so don't feel bad. Um, and I actually accidentally got hoodwinked to seeing the last Fantastic Beast movie in 3D, which was not a fun experience because A, I really didn't enjoy that movie and B, the 3D conversion was not that great in my eyes. And so I was like, it was just... It was just doubling down on my frustration with that movie. So don't mm-hmm. feel bad of having disappointing experiences of seeing movies in 3D. Yeah, I, I avoid it at all costs. Um, it's like, I know technically it's more expensive, but it's like, no, I don't care. I want, like, it's not a, it's not, I'm not avoiding it to save the money. It's like, I'll go to an IMAX screening, no problem. I just want 2D. I, I went to the theater one time and they gave me the wrong, t- like the wrong ticket stub before the right showtime. And so, like, they just had two of them and they gave me the 3D one. And they're like, well, we screwed up and gave you the wrong one, free upgrade. And I'm like, no, no, no. I would like my actual ticket, please. I don't want to go see it in 3D. Keep those glasses. I want no part of it. And the only reason I did the Captain America double feature that way is it was not offered in 2D as a double feature. And I more wanted the experience of seeing the two movies together than 2D for my first time. And I don't remember how many times I saw it in theaters, but I, I saw it several times. So it's not like it's the only time I saw it, but it, yeah, I still kind of look back and just have to laugh at myself over that one. <laughs> I mean, like, Hugo Weaving coming in and ruling the roost. And you're like, why is he out of focus? Is the projector kind of a mistake? Oh, oh right. They put these on. That makes it a little bit better right there. Um, my experience with this is, like, because I was still at uh, SUNY Oswego here. And it was myself, um, well, my closest friends, Tom, and our friend Joe. We literally walked to the theater talking about what's, what could happen with this movie here. And then we... And then, like, we were talking about the next Avengers movie um, that would be coming out the following year. And then, kind of, they knew more about the comics than I did. So they were filling in to me who Ultron is. And, like, the, the he has an entire country of Ultrons that he has that he rules over, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, sort of. I mean, Ultron 
in the comics created by Hank Pym, he uh, Ultron becomes sentient and basically decides that the problem with Earth is humans and wants to destroy all the humans and does make, like we saw in the movie, several hundreds and thousands of other Ultron robots. Uh, I mean, so, I mean, that's Ultron in a nutshell. The whole, like, Sokovia stuff that they did in the movie was really for the movie. Gotcha. And I remember just walking there and just being wowed. Like, I literally kind of, like, stopped and looked, looked around at one point and seeing everybody's reaction to just the action scenes, especially the hand-to-hand combat scenes, like how visceral they all were. And it was something that I was not expecting from this movie and that I was completely gobsmacked by. I was like, wow, this is really, really good. And then we'll kind of get into our feelings uh, when it came to the story decisions as it goes along. And so the movie opens up with Anthony Mackie, who plays, I'm going to say, wow, I can't remember his first name, Sam Wilson, as Mm -hmm. as he's running, he's doing his morning run around the nation's capital. What what are the very first, what's the very first line of dialogue in the entire movie? On your left. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And and of course, the rule three, because Cap laps him three times running around the nation's capital. Yeah, and I was just immediately hooked by, but it's just on your left the first time. And the second time, yeah, yeah, on your left. The third time, don't you say, oh, come on. <laughs> and I'm just, it just loved it. And then they're talking to him and he's like, you should be ashamed of yourself. Take a lap. Did you just do it? Are you back? <laughs> and I just like the chemistry between the two of them was just immediate. It's just, it's just there, you know, great actors can work with other great actors, even if the chemistry is kind of lacking, but like these two didn't even have to overcome that because they're just immediately, you can just see how well they get along, which is so perfect for who these characters are playing. Definitely. And the fact that they also, they mesh because they're former soldiers and they have the shared experience of serving that, that bonds them to begin with and how, Sam recognizes that Steve is still having a hard time adjusting to traditional or polite society or modern society, I should say, and how he gives him the kind of suggestions like how maybe you should come down to the VA hospital that I volunteer at and see if it might be beneficial for you, but also recommending one of the best records that Marvin Gaye ever made, the, the Trouble Man soundtrack. As a Marvin Gaye fan, that was like, oh, that is fantastic. That that gets a shout out there. And then, of course... Um, uh, Natasha Romanoff, the Black Widow, pulls up in her Corvette. And let me interrupt you. That list that you see Steve write down the Marvin Gaye soundtrack on in other countries, that list of things to check out was different. Yeah, so. which I don't understand. Well, like, I understand certain regions around the world because obviously Disney is a global corporation and they do make more edits for different um, nations and, and everything. I, I just don't understand what would be beneficial of changing the list from uh one province to the other i i think it was just to localize it you know like put in stuff that uh americans would be more drawn to that would be a bigger deal to americans and then put in stuff for um insert other country here and insert a third country there and i think it was just to localize it to different regions just so that it would be something that the audience could connect to for their particular culture and history Gotcha. And it is just curious to see, like, because I know box office-wise, uh, Star Wars doesn't make a huge splash in China as compared to the United States, if I'm not mistaken. 
Right, right. No, uh, at least, I mean, I'd have to look up the numbers for the sequel trilogy, but, like, the, the original trilogy, I don't even know if it was over at Star Wars when it first, over in China when it first came out. So, but it's, it's definitely, like, in general, the Chinese movie-going audience doesn't have history with Star Wars the way that the U.S. does. Right. I, I mean, it is, like, you go back to the 1980s, like, two-thirds of the box office were domestic, and one-third was international. Like, the international market has grown since the days of, like, I'm in the middle of Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, biography, and he's saying, like, how he pushed, since he's an international star, he pushed for international markets to be opened up for his movies, and it's obviously a trend that's led to today where the international market is sometimes considered more important than the domestic. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, absolutely. It depends on who you want to talk to about it, but ultimately... It- if you make your money internationally, you're still making your money. It's vital. Absolutely vital today. Yeah, I mean, I think it's why, like, with that in mind, you don't get a billion dollars in a weekend for Avengers Endgame without a huge, huge fan base internationally. Right, exactly. I mean, that, we'll talk about that with Endgame, but that kind of thing doesn't happen without massive worldwide buy in. Yeah, I mean, like, it was, like, probably 99% um, awareness was going into that weekend. Like, I said, like, 99% of the public probably was aware of Endgame coming out at that point. Hence the huge turnout. Um, Yeah, so Natasha Romanoff shows up and picks up Steve. And they somehow made Scarlett Johansson more alluring, alluring than ever before. Especially how she plays it in this scene here, because she always kind of plays like her kind of character, kind of like flirty with Steve Rogers, just to, to poke fun at him and everything. But here, like, she's very uh, flirty, and to her and to Steve and Sam, and I'm just like, wow, just coming off strong here. And I, I hear about it. I, I was just not expecting it so early in the movie for Scarlett to be doing that. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's Black Widow. It's what she does. She's very seductive character and Scarlett Johansson plays that wonderfully. But you know, Sam Wilson was here for it. Cause he was definitely making eyes at her too. And so it, it's just really, it's right away. You get about three, four minutes into the movie and we've got like our three principal heroes of this movie and the first time on screen together. Loved it. Definitely. And then we launch into the Lumarian star set piece where a, cargo ship is or a satellite launching ship excuse me uh has been taken over by uh, algerian terrorist and the shield with the strike team led by steve rogers is going there to rescue the hostages and this is when we get to the first real experience of like how cap is trained in the past few years since the first avengers incident in new york and how he's become a even better leader and fighter amongst the people working at shield yeah, his hand-to-hand combat definitely was elevated in the time since. I, in story, I don't know. Maybe he thought he needed to be better, stronger, faster uh, due, to, due to how the Chitari worked out, due to being able to help more with the battle in New York. But regardless, this opening scene, like, you know, he jumps out and... I don't even remember the other guy, the name of the other guy off the top of my head, but he's like, hey, did he jump? And then Rumlow says, N- or did he have a parachute? Rumlow says, no, he didn't have a parachute. And he just dives in the water and then just nearly single-handedly, because they have to crack a joke about it, but nearly single-handedly takes out everybody that's on top, like, on top of the deck of the Lumerian Star. And 
I tell you that that action sequence is still today just one that I I will just randomly throw on just to watch. It's like, hey, I want to watch a cool Captain America scene. There's a handful of them I'll pick from, and that's one of them. And the way he moved, the speed and the intensity at which he would hit and take these guys out, just like like you could feel their pain. You could feel it when he would connect with them. And it's just a wonderfully choreographed action set piece. I have to agree. And, of course, it's like um, the KG Beast of Batman v Superman. That's the one who's ma- who made Yeah, the- it's the same guy. Yeah, it's yep. the same actor. Like, he plays in both worlds and um, meets uh, bad ends in both uh, franchises, unfortunately. Um, and this is when, like, before, like, he jumps out of the Quinjet without the parachute, like you mentioned. And this is when I first really noticed Henry Jackman's score. And... That was one little disappointing thing going into this at first, that Alan Silvestri did not return to score this movie like he had done with the first the first Captain America movie. Well, I I, I hear you on that. Like Silvestri's scores are wonderful. The, the Captain America theme, which you do hear in this, and you know Silvestri comes back later, and like especially in Infinity War and Endgame, I love his work. But I got to tell you, I, I'm not a huge score guy. But I like the score guy. I like the score a lot in this. Like the the music, like it's very intense as they're circling around that boat as he infiltrates it, and for me, it works really well. Yeah, I think this is this, like this track along with the track called I think just called the Winter Soldier, like are my two favorite pieces of the uh, the album, and it's very Hans Zimmer esque because Jackman was I think he came out he came up underneath the uh, Hans Zimmer. I think he was like a a student of Hans Zimmer's, like like so many other people working in the industry today, like that's the one cool thing about Hans Zimmer. He doesn't hold people back. He like, hey, you want to learn how to do compose music? Uh, sure, stay with me, and I'll help you do that. And like you mentioned, with the the intensity of this hand hand combat, it was very Jason Bourne esque. And according to the commentary track, I think it was Joe Russo said like, yeah, you think of back in the World War Two, like. You join the army six weeks later. You're in the battlefield and everything, and you're slugging at uh, the enemy. Here, like, all right, we want to have show that there's been some training has gone on to keep up with the modern times here. And like you mentioned, is how I think that that's the benefit of showing the scene of how fast he is running around the nation's capital. The first scene to see how he is just clearing the deck here, how he can run from one side of the deck to the other and just I feel bad for that one soldier who does not see it coming and he just like, gets the shield to the side of the head and he goes ass over T kill over the railing and into the water. Like he had no chance of <laughs> I just himself. watched that part. I've got it playing right now in front of me and that part as you said it just happened. <laughs> and yeah, it, it's so good. The shield movements that he does here. Or when he throws the knife through the guy's hand to stop him from triggering the alarm. It it yeah, like Russo said, it's like he didn't have a ton of training in First Avenger. And a lot of what he got by on was just his raw power. Now he's got the training to back up the raw power. Exactly. And it's one of the jokes I, I always remember from the honest trailers for Winter Soldier. It's like, meet a Captain America that never skips leg day. And just a montage of all the kicks that Captain <laughs> does in this movie. And there is several. <laughs> I'm going to have to look that up. <laughs> um, and so... While this is going on, this is when I forget the terrorist name here. Who is the one who is the Batrox the Leaper? Who is from the comics, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
and he is played by a UFC fighter. Um, I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name now. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm going to UFC uh, George St. Pierre. Before before shield your comments and your tweets, everybody. I looked it up. Don't worry. Um, and he's wondering like when when they get to pay for the where's the ransom coming in, and that's when. Um, Black Widow secures the engines, and that's when the strike team goes in and saves the hostages. Where, and of course, like I love that little punch, the little punchline from one of the Shield agents. Uh, I forget his name, but this is why Shield does not negotiate with terrorists. Okay, so that agent is Jasper Sitwell. Um, we've seen him a few times prior to this, um, but the the point, the thing I want to bring up related to him specifically is when this movie came out. The TV show, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., was still very much, like, they were very much doing their it's all connected thing, and it actually was. Like, the first couple seasons of S.H.I.E.L.D. very much take place in the MCU, and there are things, elements that go back and forth between them. Now, since uh, 2015-ish, that is not true anymore. It's very obvious. They're totally separate. Basically, they have a shared history, and then they forked off of each other, but... I don't remember the exact episode number. I want to say like episode 17 or something like that of agents of shield season one has the fallout of this movie. Uh, so like in episode 16, Sitwell is in it and says, Oh, I just got a mission. I got to go to the Lumerian star. And then like a week later, this movie comes out. You got to love that. It's just kind of like how in the Mandalorian recently we, sh- we see Yoda heal somebody in the show, and then we see the, the healing used a lot in The Rise of Skywalker. Right, right. Yep, very similar concept. Which, like, I, I guess it was probably for the best they forked off, because, like, how do you explain the blip in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Like, hey, half our cast is now gone? I don't know if they even well, address that in the show. Th- they don't. They it, it never gets addressed on, on this show's and Marvel Netflix stuff all wrapped up prior to it. It basically... Post, like, season two um, of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., post season two, basically what happens is they may reference, the characters may reference the movies, but the movies, up until Endgame with Jarvis from Agent Carter, and there's a very specific reason why, they, like, I think Age of Ultron is the last time there's anything reference to a TV show. And in Age of Ultron, it's a super subtle thing, but it's a helicarrier that shows up at the end that Nick Fury has. Oh, my friend got it out, you know, dusted off the mothballs. Well, that friend was Coulson on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And so it's like, no, they, they, they forked off. Like, the shows will acknowledge the movies, but the movies do not acknowledge the shows anymore. That's going to be changing with the Disney Plus shows, of course. But, I mean, it's very different. And the whole just... I'm sure we'll mention it again, but the whole reason Jarvis is different is Agent Carter was actually produced and like uh, some of the writing was done by like the actual movie team, like the Marvel Studios teams and not just the TV team. Which I wonder if Feige was 100% in the control of this time, would the TV shows been more connected? It's hard to say. Um, my hunch is actually they would have been less connected because once Feige moved out, was moved out under his own, you know, so he was reporting basically up the chain to Bob, Bob Iger and not going around Perlmutter. The connections all stopped. That's why you get, that's why you can have infinity war at Endgame, game. And there is nothing from the defenders from Netflix. 
nothing. And oh yeah, it's too hard because you know to to figure out the shooting schedules for the TV shows and the movies and everything. It's like, well, you're figuring it out for Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision and Loki and all of that stuff. So obviously you could figure out that stuff. And sure, those are different because they don't have you know twenty episodes a year they have to do like Agents of Shield did. But it's so obvious that Feige. To me, it looks like he tolerated the TV shows, but he wasn't exactly bending over backwards to make them to make them work. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get more into that. And Ike Promoter, I guess, like a little bit more in the next episode um, because of the changing of the guard that happens in between Winter Soldier and Civil War. Um, and so we had this shoot, like we had the real. <clears throat> um, fight here between George St. Pierre and Steve Rogers. And it was upon this viewing, there's a really important line in this fight scene that I never realized how pointed it is in in the context of the movie because the St. Pierre and, um, and Steve Rogers are having this fight here. And that's when St. Pierre says like, are you more than just a shield? And, knowing how this movie plays out and what the the word shield means and what it, it turns out to be, it's, I just realized, huh, it's just like a very subtle thing. Like, is he more than just being an agent of shield or not? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, there's all go on. I was going to say, there's also a subtle dig at Batrock the leaper who is known for his jump moves and using his legs so much because when Steve takes him out, he does the bulk of it with his legs. So it's like he's almost using his own style against him. Yeah, and, and I mean, like, not to the extent that, like, what Taskmaster would do or anything, but it, it is a it is a nice subtle thing that just like that odd flip, and then just the kicking him in the face, and then eventually knocking him the f out when he he finally throws him through the door and gives him a haymaker to the face at two inches away. But that's when Steve discovers that Natasha is doing her own secret mission while she's on the ship and she's taking all the files that are stored there for fury and it kind of it kind of causes steve to be furious if you don't mind me saying so <laughs> i do not mind at all <laughs> i know you don't there's a lot of people in the world who probably would uh object to my using of that word right there because not a lot of people appreciate my puns like you do well, they're wrong. <laughs> I can just feel the eyes of Jamie Julie just rolling into the back of his head <laughs> upon that. But that's when we, the following day, we were introduced to S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters and Steve confronting Fury, who decides to show him what S.H.I.E.L.D. is really doing with all this information. Yeah, this is when, you know, Steve basically is upset. He's like, how can I lead a mission when the people I'm leading have missions of their own? And... I always like that line. I always like this discussion. And then they go down to look at Project Insight to look at the helicarriers. And Fury tells him the story, you know, uh, about his, his grandpa who was an elevator doorman and was getting tips. And uh, as the neighborhood got worse and worse, it went from being super friendly to he'd have to carry a gun for to protect himself. And it's just a really great conversation, like telling you where it ends. And for me, it really kind of caps off with Steve looking at the helicarriers, telling them like, this isn't freedom. It's fear, right? He's like the crime is supposed to, or the punishment supposed to take place after the crime. 
and Fury saying, we can't afford to wait that long. I love this scene between the two of them. It's such a great, great conversation. Right, because it just illustrates their philosophical differences and how they view their, I guess, their missions in life. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's absolutely, you could put it that way. It's definitely, it's like, it's these two men with very, very different viewpoints on how they should go about their joint mission of protecting the world. Exactly. And I kind of want to reference, uh, like, what was it, like, what I realized... Uh, one of my favorite books on writing that I have here in my hand is called Creating Character Arcs by K.M. Wyland. And her whole uh, deal for this book here is to marry uh, a story structure with character arcs. Like, how can you structure your movie and your character arc for your main character, or any characters for that matter? And there's three popular arcs that you, you would find in most Hollywood movies. There's the positive change where a character goes from a negative place to a positive place. You think of George McFly in Back to the Future, the first one, where he goes from a meek individual to a strong person who knows to stand up for himself and is able to be a successful writer. You have the negative character arc. You think of Anakin in the prequels, where he goes from this person who should have been the the best Jedi in the world, but he descends into darkness and becomes the biggest Sith in the universe next to the Emperor, or you think of Michael Corleone over the course of the Godfather movies. And then, finally, there's the flat character arc. A character who's, I'm going to quote here, I want to say, where a person who does not change. And I say, uh, quote, The flat arc is about a character who does not change. He's already ha- He already has the truth figured out at the beginning of the story, and uses the truth to help him to overcome various external uh, tests. And she uses, and every chapter has a few movies that she kind of breaks down all these uh, points of the story to illustrate her uh, technique of telling stories. And one of them is Captain America, the Winter Soldier. And it goes, quote, is that Rogers' current normal world is a shaky one where he is increasingly uncomfortable with the jobs S.H.I.E.L.D. is asking him to do, supposedly in the name of freedom. Almost right away, he's shown a distrusting of the motives of those who are using him as a weapon to achieve their own ends. And after he learns that Director Fury has up his sleeve, he knows he has he can't maintain his truth and he, if he remains a shield. And he spends the bulk of the first act contemplating a simply walking away. And his whole his whole arc in this movie is not to change. That he is the constant and he changes the world around him. And that's what I think is so fascinating with this movie here, that he is the he's like, kind of like the last person standing and is able to, to, I don't want to say manipulate, but able to show what the world is through his old fashioned mm-hmm. values. Yeah, absolutely. He, one thing that is great about Steve throughout all of these movies is he doesn't, he changes, he grows, but his fundamental values are still, they remain constant. And, that is just something that you really, really like to see for a character like Captain America. Exactly. But the words that Rogers has said to Nick Fury has kind of shaken him a little. And so after trying to review the some stuff in the program for the these three helicarriers here, they're going to be taking out uh, targets before they become threats. Um, and he, but he can't. There's some kind of security override. So he has to go to his boss the Secretary of Internal Security, Alexander Pierce, played by Robert Redford, who's a huge get for this movie, especially from 
perspective of political thrillers of the 70s, which was a huge influence on this movie, especially Three Days of the Condor. And so I'll ask you, Brent, your feelings on Robert Redford in this movie and his portrayal of Alexander Pierce. Well, he's he's a massive star. I mean, he a huge get is probably an understatement. And, I mean, they've had other big names, too. I mean, Anthony Hopkins is no slouch either, right? But it's like, wow, names and people are starting to want to be a part. Like, big, huge names are starting to want to be a part of what Marvel was doing here. And that would just continue on as deeper into Phase 2 and into Phase 3, of course. As for the character himself, it's like, I didn't know. Like, I didn't know he was going to be... What like what his his character's arc was going to go through at the time that was a surprise to me, and I, I mean, like seeing this person, it's like, okay, where were you for the Avengers? Okay, well, this is the council that Fury was talking to directly. Okay, I see it. It's like immediate buying, and you see like the trust that Fury has with him right away, and it's like they basically use Fury to vouch for him, which totally worked on me. Totally worked on me. Definitely. And you're right. I mean, obviously, Anthony Hopkins is a huge star, as well as Rene Russo, in that appeared in the first Thor movie. But there was something about it because Robert Redford, you just think of, oh, Robert Redford, the actor, the creator of the Sundance Film Festival. Yeah, that's a kind of that's a whole different ball game when it came to star. And we continue going forward that we would have actors like Michael Douglas, and then you and then you obviously have, then you have like Jeff Goldblum, and there's so many others that, that are somehow blanking from my mind at this point. Um, that would, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer would be another one. Yeah, of course, Michelle Pfeiffer. And that's a, I always feel bad for an Ant-Man versus Wasp because I feel like she should have been in it more of. That's just me being greedy because I just love Michelle Pfeiffer, and I just wish she was in that movie more, but obviously it makes sense why she doesn't show up until the second half of the movie. Plus a flashback. Yes, and the flashback. But also when Michelle Fiverr's personality is in um, Paul Rudd's body, it's just funny. It's all get oh out. Oh my gosh, that scene is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> all credit to Paul Rudd there. <laughs> uh, obviously, definitely. And the, uh, during the scene here between uh, Fury and Pierce, um, he interrupts Pierce's Zoom call. This is how... This movie was so prescient that it, it predicted Zoom calls to such an extent here. It's the future version of Zoom calls, like S.H.I.E.L.D. was that far ahead. Um, that he feels... Well, not just that, but we, we see these calls again in at the beginning of Avengers Endgame. Yes, we do. Like we see very similar technology to this. Advanced farther, but very similar. Yeah, because at that, that point, it's truly intergalactic, those calls. Mm-hmm. And people say 5G is bad. Um, um, <laughs> oh, yeah, subtle dig at those people. And so Fury is saying, like, maybe we shouldn't launch these helicarriers. He's, like, he's, he's starting to have a little bit of a doubt. And so Pierce says, all right, maybe we'll, maybe we'll consider this. We'll take this under advisement kind of thing. And so Fury leaves for the day. And then he finds himself to be attacked by police officers randomly. And attacked the police by several police officers firing machine guns on his vehicle, leading into a huge car chase and gunfight, culminating with the Winter Soldier finding revealing himself. And for some reason, maybe it's just today's current events here, that this action scene just hit a lot harder than it did initially for me. I don't know if that's just me or not. Well, when the police, like, roll up and look at him, or the fake police, like, Fury looks at them and says something like, do you want to see the lease, or do you want to see my title, or something like that, and 
yeah, because, you know, he kind of, it's like, why are you staring me down right now? Like, I'm sitting here at a stoplight not doing anything. Yeah. And, like, obviously, like, but then we find out they were truly bad guys that opened up on um, Fury's uh, vehicle with machine guns. And and I assume this obviously it's a shield vehicle and it's souped it's souped up because it has so many different technology and gadgets built in. Um, how do you feel about this set piece here about Fury trying to get away from these uh, uh, mercenaries that are shooting up uh, DC here? So it's not one that I go back and revisit in isolation that often, but it is one that I enjoy when I'm rewatching this movie. And you know, like. The you can see like the strategy going on in Fury's head as he like assesses the situation and like takes control and like the the car's basically autopilot like wants to pull up the gun and start shooting and he says wait and he waits for the door to be nearly so weak that their next hit is going to plow through and then he shoots through to kill those people then they they escape and he's like okay no forget you give me the wheel I'm gonna drive I'm in control so he can be in control of his own destiny right there um I do want to say when he escapes, he, you know, like cut a hole in the floor and went into the like sewer system, right? The device he did that with came from the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show. So he got a lightsaber from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Basically, yeah. Which, like, I, I, I was almost like wondering, like, is there is there going to be a purple beam going to come out of that? Because it is totally a lightsaber. That would have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what a great callback that would have been. But no, no purple beams, sadly. I mean, at this point, they had owned Star Wars. They could have done it anyway. Um, yeah, this is like... I know at one point it during this chase scene here that um, Fury runs a red light into an intersection and two cop cars are pursuing him. And then those two cop cars are taken out by a moving van, a moving truck, I should say. And people... And like that, that's when the... I guess the tease that it was the Punisher driving that truck. Have you ever heard about this? Sure, I have. Um, I've never put a lot of stock into that. It's always just been like a little bit of fan fiction, if you will. Like, um, might be, may, honestly, it, what it feels like is the thing where in uh, Iron Man 2, there's a young boy that is wearing an Iron Man mask that is looking up at Iron Man, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, Stark briefly says something. I don't remember the line, but he briefly like acknowledges his presence and then flies off and continues the battle. And a lot of people, especially after civil war, were like, Oh, that young boy, what if it was Peter Parker? And they've kind of retroactively said, yeah, of course that was Peter Parker. And it's like, eh, that's pointless. It doesn't have to be Peter Parker. And it obviously was never your intention because you didn't have the Peter Parker rights at that time. That's not the case. I, I mean, they. I believe they do have the Punisher rights at this point in 2014, but that's kind of how I viewed it. It's like, eh, you're looking for something that's just not there. Yeah, I think it was maybe one of the writers, or maybe it was one of the directors that said, yeah, the guy who's driving it has this particular set of skills that has a past with uh, Nick Fury, and so people put put down their jump to conclusions, Matt, from Office Space, and, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and put two and four together to get the Punisher. Yeah, and, you know, maybe someday we'll we'll get to see the Punisher again. It's just, it, this wasn't it. Maybe, I mean, they may ret- retcon it, but it will be a retcon. And retcons are fine. There's nothing wrong with a retcon. But at this time, in 2014, it was not the Punisher. Right. And I know at one point, I mean, 
not one point, but like if Frank Grillo wasn't um wasn't Rumlow, aka Crossbones, in this, I think he would have made a terrific Punisher for the MCU. Oh, he's come out and said he wanted that part in the past. Oh, really? Like, I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, like he he has actually taught, and even recently he has kind of brought that up, but as saying like he thinks that that opportunity is past. But especially, obviously, because, you know, of who he becomes and throughout the, uh, the remainder of the Winter Soldier and into Civil War. But, no, like, he would be a good Punisher. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and, obviously, this movie is definitely influenced by the Dark Knight because, all right, so we have a – then we have a villain – who's mysterious and introduced with a musical motif that's one note that's building and building and building, much like how Winter Soldier walks out and blows up, or flips, I should say, Fury's truck in a dramatic fashion. But I love the little flair that he has when he does that little twirl as he gets out of the way of the truck as it goes uh, face first on top of itself, which was in all the trailers here. And... It is, it's one hell of a way to make an entrance for a character to see like all these people are trying to stop Fury and none of them are able to do it. And it's just like this, all it takes is one little bomb from the Winter Soldier who's able to incapacitate Fury at least momentarily. Well, it's a pretty cool bomb. So let's give it as, give him credit. But no, this, the the introduction of the Winter Soldier and you kind of, they just, most of his arm is covered. Like you kind of just see like the fingers Right when he grabs that door and just rips it off the hinges, giving you just a hint of that he's stronger. That he does he doesn't have to. He's not just a regular human. Just just a little subtle hint of it. Um, it. I, I mean, I I obviously knew who he was. Like my dad was with my dad again. He didn't know who he was. Like he didn't know it was Bucky. Of course they they the movie had made a point of reminding us about Bucky because they had we had you know he had had that little Steve went like to that Captain America museum exhibit where he was kind of just reflecting on his life and they do focus in on Bucky and make a point of saying he was the only Howling Commando who died in action. And like, they really focus in on it just to kind of remind the audience about Bucky, but they don't give you any indication if you don't know from the comics that that's who this is. Yeah. And uh, two things I want to, I know I, I kind of skipped over it, but, um, one, I love how they got Gary Sinise to do the voiceover for the Captain America Smithsonian um, exhibit. Uh, especially since you know, like, if you know, like, Gary Sinise is, is a huge um, supporter of the armed forces. And so, and of course, he's Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump, so it just makes even more mm-hmm. sense. And according to the commentary track, when they open up, the, how they open up that scene is like a crane shot starring on the um, Miracle of St. Louis, and they boom down and they show the the rest of the Smithsonian. And apparently Joe Russo was very nervous that day because the camera was literally like three inches, three inches away from the St. Louis. And they're like, I'm like, hope to God, let's not destroy part of American history right here. Let's not be the ones responsible for this. Let's be as, as sensitive and calm and collective as possible when we're operating this. Okay. Cause I do not want to be the one to damage this plane. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so uh, we have a we have Steve coming home and then we're introduced to his neighbor who is a nurse that we find out to be um, a shield uh, agent that's actually watching him. Mm-hmm. But I, I love his Steve's kind of odd attempts to flirt. 
with her. Well, yeah. Think back uh, right before the Lumerian star mission, Widow had been like telling him, hey, you got to get out there. You know, what about this person? What about that person? And this was him kind of taking Natasha's advice and trying to put himself out there. But he felt awkward about it and it, knowing that she is an agent assigned to help protect him and kind of probably watch over him from her perspective, she's trying to awkwardly dance around it too, because she likes the idea, but she really can't do anything about it right now. Um, and can we just acknowledge, cause you just have to, cause this is always a little icky with captain America. It's Sharon Carter. It's Peggy's niece. Right. And they don't actually tell us that until the next movie, but that's who it is. And, it, this happened in the comics too. Like Sharon Carter is a big love interest of his and you know, he dated the aunt and now in modern times he's dating the niece and it always just felt a little ickish, but just have to acknowledge it's there and then we can move on. Yeah. I mean, as long as he doesn't like call out Peggy's name when they're in the, in the moment, <laughs> I, I I don't think it should be too bad, but it, like, it, like I can just imagine that as like a, college humor or cracked like a uh, parody video of like Captain America having sex for the first time in 70 years. He accidentally calls out her aunt, great aunt's name. Like, Oh, uh, wow. This is super awkward. Yeah, that is awkward. But of course then he goes in his house and it's no longer awkward and things get real serious real fast. Yeah. And uh, since you, if we brought up Peggy here, let's jump back a little bit here. Um, did you expect to see Peggy again in this movie? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, you know, at this point, didn't know. I don't remember Agent Carter. The show being, maybe it was in talks, but I don't remember it. Um, I don't, and so I absolutely did not expect to see her. And she, I mean, she makes an appearance in quite a few movies after the first one, and plus the TV show. You know, she shows up on two seasons of Agent Carter, and she's in a couple flashbacks on Agents of Shield. Really, Haley Atwell had a pretty good run with this character, considering it would have been incredibly easy to just. Effectively write her off, ignore her, never bring her up again, or at least never show her on screen again. Yeah, very much like how Tommy Lee Jones never comes back after the first adventure. Sure, we see a portrait right. of him in this movie, but that's about it. Right, and there's another big name for you joining the MCU. Not not quite Robert Redford, but still up there for sure. Definitely, and I think it's just heartbreaking because, like, obviously that she's an old woman in a home, and sees having a conversation with her. And he goes to grab something and he comes back and then she, her mind resets and you realize, oh, that her memory's going, that she's, that is deteriorating and she doesn't like remember. And she's, he, that sees probably had this conversation a dozen times or more of her like recognizing, oh my God, Steve's back. And that's just like, I, I remember I felt the entire theater just like heartbreak in one single emotion right there when that happened mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely um and so yeah like back to uh, the current point here is when um steve rogers uh, sees a injured nick fury in his apartment saying ears are everywhere shields compromised and then this is something like here so fury gets shot several times by the winter soldier and steve gives a, a chase here and I love how Steve is he's running so hard that he, and especially if you if anybody runs to at full strength, you you cannot pivot, you cannot turn on a dime. But when he does, he can't turn a dime. He puts holes in the wall. <laughs> yeah, he either bounces off the wall as he goes around a corner, or he goes through doorways if they're if they're between him and where he's going. Like he's not going to stop to open the door. That'll slow him down way too much. 
Right. I know like some people like to be kind of shitty and say like his power level is kind of inconsistent between movies. Like, oh, he can't do this, but he can throw a motorcycle. I know some people have been really kind of nitpicky about that. I mean, Captain America, more often than not, is depicted not as being like... I, I do remember times of him being like, the serum just put him to like the peak of human perfection. And other times, and definitely in the last couple decades, it's been more of a... No, it actually gave him power. Like, he is stronger than a human can be. Well, if Rob Liefeld's drawing him, then yes, he definitely has a lot of power. Oh, good lord, why would you go there? <laughs> <laughs> because if I want to make a cheap uh, art joke when it comes to comic books here, I will I will bring up Pockets, uh, a.k.a. Rob Liefeld. Or Pouch, I should say, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on, so. <laughs> and probably one of the most iconic shots this entire movie is when uh, Steve is able to catch up with the Winter Soldier See, throws the shield at him, and for the first time ever, somebody catches the shield out of midair. Catches it, throws it back, and sure, Steve catches it, but it physically pushes him backwards on that rooftop. Like, he's not able to just catch it and move on the way he normally is. Like, he's never had that kind of strength thrown at him directly before. Not even from the Hulk, because him and Hulk never, like, you know, really came to blows or anything like that in the Avengers. No, and the Red Skull never thought the idea to throw the shield back at uh, Captain in the climax of the first Avenger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he very briefly had a thing with Thor where Thor hit his shield with the hammer, but, like, that was it. It was one blow. He didn't, Thor never got a hold of it either. So this is the first time that his weapon had been used, his weapon, his shield had been used against him. And speaking of, like, okay, I know I'm, this question is probably already answered here, but do you think, could Wolverine's claws go through the shield? Um, you know, in the comics at times, the shield was supposed to be like, uh, in the movie they made a vibranium, and in the, in the comics it was supposed to be adamantium, which Wolverine's claws, and they're, they're supposed to be able to cut through anything, right? And so, like, the one thing they can't cut through is adamantium itself or whatever. So it's like, in the comics I've seen it where it's no, I, I'm going to guess... I'm going to guess that an MCU version of adamantium would probably be able to cut through a vibranium-made shield, which is what he has. I'm also going to say we will probably never actually see that. But it is different. I mean, the shield we know the shield can take damage because Black Panther's claws scratched it in Civil War. Right, that, that's what I'm saying. Like That's why I prefaced it, wondering, like, did I just answer my own question there? But then again... Somehow, it, like I guess because Thanos is able to make a, a crack in the facade of... Not the facade, but this, the structure of the shield itself. That's why he's able to rip it to pieces in Endgame. Yeah, but remember, like, Thanos' power level. Like, he also went toe-to-toe with Hulk at the start of Infinity War, right? And he didn't use the, the Infinity Stone. He had one, but he didn't use it. Because every time in that movie, when he uses one, you see it flare up. He took on the Hulk hand to hand, and he may not have been as strong as Hulk, but he was strong enough to hold his own and beat him with his fighting prowess. And then, so now you have someone in that strength caliber with his massive sword thing that he had in Endgame, just beating the shield repeatedly. Not to mention, at that point, the shield had been used in battle in conjunction with Thor's hammer. And so it's like, who knows, like, the actual integrity of the shield at that point like it had to have been weakened most definitely and uh, i love how we just got into the weeds there of the structural um 
the integrity of Captain America's shield. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's all right. That's all right. And I think the reason why I, that Thanos was able to go toe-to-toe with Hulk, because I think Hulk is a brawler, and I think Thanos, like, strong, at least as strong as Hulk, but just is just more competent uh, combatant when yeah, it came to hand combat. Yeah, he's strong enough to hang with him. And where he's, the part, any deficiency from strength is obviously more than made up for in his combative abilities. Definitely. I mean, the, uh, Hulk will just jump into battle, just look at that. I, I, the, the fu- I think the funniest shot in all of Thor Ragnarok, when he goes flying through the air to fight the giant demon at the end that's going to destroy Asgard. Hulk, no, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, it became one of my favorite memes for that year. Is that like, 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 all right, I'm just going to go out. I'm going to have one drink and we're going to go back. We're going to we're gonna call a night after that. Six drinks later, me making a bad decision. It's just Hulk flying towards the giant creature. <laughs> so good. So good. <laughs> and so Fury apparently dies. But uh, spoilers, he's not dead. Um, I, I know I'm jumping ahead there, but... Do you think that was a mistake pulling the fake death card with Fury? No, I don't. I, one, it's Fury. He, the only thing that surprises me about it, really, in hindsight, is they didn't use that as an opportunity to introduce the LMDs, the life model decoys. And, and in fact, those were also introduced on the show, but post the, the breakup on, on the S.H.I.E.L.D. show. No, I, I don't think it's a mistake. It, would it have surprised me if he would have actually been dead yeah it would have and i know the characters behave and as we follow steve after this we are supposed to believe that fury is dead because steve does but i mean come come on really i mean let's just say there are surprises in the movie i don't think fury being alive is really one of them right i mean i just know there it gave credence to people's criticisms that Death is kind of meaningless in the MCU. Like, like people that were kind of pedantic about that. This was just except for he didn't die. <laughs> he never died. So, like, it's it's to me that's irrelevant. If he, uh, they could like with Bucky, it's a little different, right? Because like he was thought to be dead for fifty years. Here, he was thought to be dead for the weekend, right? I mean, it's I I just I don't I. That criticism, I think, is ridiculous anyway, because it applies to all comic books. All comic books it applies to. And so it's like, whatever. Again, like we said at the, earlier, there's only a handful of characters that were like, when they died, they have remained so. And as of now, there's really only the one with Uncle Ben. I mean, hell, Peter Parker's parents have come back and died several times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely have. And uh, now I just had I just, in the nineties, his parents came back as like, uh, like actors paid by the chameleon. And then like, I think androids somewhere was involved in part of that. And like, they were back and they were around and like, they were around during the maximum carnage storyline, which I love so much. And then, Oh, it's the whole thing is a ruse and, and they're gone again. It's like, yeah, that kind of thing. It's comic books. You know, if, I feel like if you're going to complain about somebody dying and then popping back up, it's like, they thought he was dead, but he's back. Or they died in this movie, but he pops back up in the next movie. I, I think it's looking at it the wrong way. I don't think we're supposed to look at it as, does the audience truly believe that Fury is dead? 
but or are we supposed to look at it as how the other characters react and behave? Like think of when Natasha and Steve talk with each other and they're, they're talking about the files that Fury gave him. Hey, why was he in your apartment? Well, he told me not to trust anyone. Did that include me? It's like, he just said, anyway, it's like, that kind of conversation, it's its great storytelling. It's building the relationship between Natasha and Steve, and it doesn't happen if they don't genuinely believe Fury's dead. Right. Like, I, like, like it was a shock to me when we thought in the theater, I was like, wow, they actually killed off Fury. And I think it would be different if, whenever Black Widow was released, that in the future that Natasha is brought back from the dead. I think that's when people have, could be, let's say litigious about the fact like, Oh, that death is really meaningless in the MCU. I mean, then again, like you said, it's comic books. <laughs> what, 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 are, so what, what are they trumpeting when they say that, that Superman died at the end of BVS, <laughs> you know, and he's back the next movie and there's already a sign at the end of BVS that he's going to be back with the dirt lifting off of the grave. I mean, uh, or I'm sorry, are we talking about Steve Trevor who died at the end of Wonder Woman, but he's in Wonder Woman 1984. It is comic books. You know, it, there are things, there are things that the MCU does or the other franchises do that you can appreciate things that maybe you think could be better. In my opinion, the, did this character die or not is, I just don't care. It's all about how did it serve the story it was telling? Did anybody really believe they killed Black Panther and Spider-Man at the end of Infinity War? Yeah, maybe some kids did, but nobody who's like realizes, oh, there was, you know, they just, Black Panther just made over a billion dollars and there's a Spider-Man movie coming out in a little over a year, right? It's like, no, but how did the characters react to their deaths? That's where the compelling part of the storytelling is. And ladies and gentlemen, that's at BreadTech Prime. If you want to send your angry tweets at, or if you want to uh, <laughs> argue this care. point with, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> um, no, yeah, like it, it was like I know that some people like will say like, why didn't you bring this up? So that's why I just wanted to address it here. And like you said, that when Pierce and Rogers like meet face to face, every time I say Rogers just by itself, I just think of Aaron Rodgers and just all the commercials he's done as a as being part of the Green Bay Packers here. I just think of Rogers. Um, so I, like that's what's ringing in my <laughs> head every enough. time I say that. <laughs> I will allow it. So no, I now I'm just imagining in my mind's eye just the upcoming fight that we have in the elevator, but. Steve, Tra- uh, Steve Rogers with a cheese head on the entire time while fighting all these uh, shield goons. You're welcome, ladies and gentlemen, for that image right there. And so, yeah, yeah um, and so Pierce asks, like, "Hey, are like, are we cool?" And that's when uh, Steve says, "Like, I can't trust anyone right now." And Pierce is like, "All right, fine, that's here. Just want to know where we stood." And so this is when we get into arguably the best fight scene in all the MCU with the elevator fight scene between Cap and like 12 members of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's in the conversation. It absolutely like there there are certain things where it's like if someone were to say this is my favorite fight scene in the MCU I'd be like really? that like That's not what I would have picked and I don't understand it. In this case I totally understand it and I would yes it, the it's iconic. That shot, like, the, the whole elevator fight scene is absolutely an iconic scene from the MCU. It is incredible. And it goes on beyond just the elevator, you know. It starts off with him talking with, with Director Pierce. And then he goes to the elevator. 
the, the people, the strike team and all the other people like in just suits and stuff show up around him. And then just, you can kind of see like as Steve starts to realize that guy's sweating and that guy's fingers are like itching, kind of moving towards where his gun would be. And this guy looks nervous and that guy looks nervous. And then just that line before we start, does anyone want to step outside? I love that line. It's such a badass line. Yeah. And it's something that oh, actually I listened to the commentary track on Empire Strikes Back not too long ago during quarantine. And the director, Irvin Kershner, says, a battle is only successful as a battle if you have adequate buildup. And he was talking about the, the battle on Hoth with all the giant walkers and seeing the rebels prepare as the looming walkers slowly get closer and closer and their doom approaches. And the same thing applies here. When we see that guy sweating, that strike team member has his hand on his, like, billy clubs when he's in the elevator. They shouldn't be like that. And then now we find out this, these people literally surround Steve. And then, of course, that that now, um, I don't say infamous, but just famous line. But before we get started, does anybody else want to get out? And then the KG Beast, uh, I'm just going to refer to him that from now on, uh, decides to initiate the combat here. And I love how, in fact, that they they knew they had to incapacitate him at, at, at all costs, nor if they had any chance of trying to take him down by magnetizing him to the the uh, side of the elevator, which does not go well whatsoever. And, and eventually, eventually, it's just a Rumlo and Cap, and like Rumlo like, tries to reason with Cap for, for a few seconds, like, whoa, big guy, I know we got off the wrong foot here, but here's a taser in the gut, and here's another taser in the gut. <laughs> and eventually, Rogers knocks him the F out by throwing him to the ceiling and dropping him to the floor like a, a bag, bag of, uh, of wet potatoes. And then that that overhead shot of him just like kicking the shield up, like kind of like a skateboard. Uh, I mean, it's like like the the elevator fight scene was teased in the trailers and in the marketing for this movie, and like that was that was just one of those set pieces that you knew when you saw it in the marketing. This might be like this could be something special. This might be something people talk about for years, and absolutely it is it is truly a special scene it is a standout scene and again it's why i understand like i would have to think about what my actual like what is my favorite fight scene like we'll talk later of like what is my all-time favorite moment but my favorite fight scene i'd have to actually think about that but i tell you this has to be in the conversation i mean it's clearly black panther versus killmonger on the the train uh, or on the train tracks. I That's do awesome. not. Uh, that, that would not make my list, but I, I do not have the problems with that that many people do. It's it just like, but hey, I'm a big fan of like the Arrowverse, right? Like CGI. Sometimes it bothers me, and when it does, it really bothers me. But otherwise, I can give it a pass. And there, I mean, there are there have been times. There's a few shots here and there where CGI really gets to me. That's not one of them. I get why it does bother people, but that's just not one that bugs me. I know it is a that's low hanging fruit for me to bring that up there. I think it's just the weightless weightlessness of the fight that kind of pulls people out of that um, that one on one that they had there in the climax. But speaking of that overhead shot in Winter Soldier, I think because I followed the Twitter page One Perfect Shot where they post like their in their eyes perfect shots in movies. I think that's the one that I see the most when they post something for the MCU. I think it's that one the most I'd see, or 
stuff from Infinity War that I would see the most from from that page, and it, it's an iconic shot of like like you said the the skateboard kick of when he pulls up into his arm there. But a lot of the fight's not over there. He, he jumps out of the elevator into the lobby of Shield, even though the Shield takes the brunt of the impact. You tell it obviously rattles Rogers. Eventually getting onto the, his motorcycle, and then it's when he fights a Quinjet one-on-one and takes it down with just a shield. Yeah, and, you know, earlier we had seen him on this on the same motorcycle, on the same bridge, and uh, leaving the Triskelion to, uh, just to kind of go and, like, think and process after he'd learned about Project Insight, but he was allowed to leave there. And here it's, he's not allowed to leave, but he's going to be leaving anyway. And uh, when he takes down that, hel- that, that Quinjet, it leads to my particular favorite superhero landing, as Deadpool calls them. And since Deadpool is dubbed that, I can't help but just notice superhero landings that wherever I watch one oh, of these yeah. movies, I'm like, God damn it, it's so right. It's so on point, that observation. I I don't care because I love them. I love those movies. I love De- the Deadpool movies. They're treasures. But, uh, yes, every time you see that, it's like, ah, superhero landing, there it is. And I like it. But this, that is, like, my favorite superhero landing. It truly is spectacular. Um, and so the flash drive that has all the information on there that that Rogers has uh, stored away in a vending machine at the hospital that, where Fury was held at has been taken by Natasha. And that's when Rogers demands the information about the Winter Soldier and how he pretty much is a boogeyman of the intelligence uh, community that he's been killing people for like seemingly decades, but somehow continues to roam the earth somehow. That's when they decide to, okay, we need to find out where we can more information about that's on this flash drive. So they go to a mall. And so they, they know they're going to be tracked there, but at least they have the cover of a busy metropolis uh, mall to kind of hide themselves here. And Steve dressed up as a hipster is like, the funniest thing in the world. They have him trying to be incognito is somehow less incognito than his outfit in the first Avenger movie. Yeah. That, that scene in the Apple store where they talk, he talks with that guy who looks nothing like him. Oh, we have the same glasses. We're like twins. <laughs> the guy just looks at him and goes specimen. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's so great. But it, what this scene really highlights for me is like when they're in their element, like how good that these two are together, Natasha and Steve. Like you have Steve like picking out like the patterns of where all the people are. It's like he's somebody who's after us. He's somebody who's after us. They're there. They're there. They're there. And then you have things like Natasha when they're on the elevator and they re- or on the escalator and they realize someone's about to pass them. Kiss me now. Public displays of affection make people uncomfortable and they look away. And like without a hesitation, she's just like, "Come on, we got to start making out." And which is true. Like what she says that I kind of. Th- Rack my brain about it, like, yeah, whenever you do see a couple of sucking face in a mall, you're like, I don't want to see that. And you immediately do turn away, mm-hmm. um, which leads to one of my favorite lines in the next scene here when they've stolen a truck and they're going to New Jersey because that's where you borrowed. Is- they borrowed a truck. Excuse me. Let me use the proper <laughs> verbiage there. They're borrowing a truck here. And Natasha teases him like, hey, was that your first kiss in the 21st century? And Steve's like, no. And clearly it is. She's like, you don't have to answer. But if you don't, you're kind of answering it. <laughs> um, and, but it, it's, 
I, I do like this scene here where they get to be human. And I have to do agree with Steve here. Like, I hate when people put their feet up on the dashboard. I'm like, no, that that's that, it's just like that. You just don't do that. It's just very rude, especially in the car that's not yours. Put your feet down. I just always think if there's an accident, your legs are toast. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a famous like car crash in the movie Death Proof where one of the characters has she has like her foot out the window. It's like resting on the mirror and her car comes head to head with the killer's car in the movie. And you do just see her body stays. Her leg goes flying. Yeah. The, the foot quite literally out the window. <laughs> so like, but like my kid tries to put her seat up in the back seat. I'm like, no, you can't do it. If there's an accident, you're going to get hurt even more. Definitely. Um, like, how do you feel about this? Like this kind of like heart to heart scene here. Uh, between Cap and Natasha. It's the characters, to me, it's, it's them bonding. Y- you know, they're they're working together, but there's... St- I, I believe that Natasha fully trusts Steve at this point. Steve is still working through his feelings and what... he's His whole faith in the S.H.I.E.L.D. organization has been sh- shaken by the Lumerian star mission by project insight. And now by fury showing up in his apartment saying things like, did you think I would even need a key to get into your house? And it's, it's like, this is him finding his uh, being willing to trust again. It's like his trust was shaken. And this, these kind of scenes as the characters get to know each other better. And that to me, like lets them realize like Steve, especially realize, no, I can trust her. I can work with her. She is on my side. Oh, precisely. And it is cool to see them to be human together and everything. And, like, the icy, I don't want to say icy, but, like, the walls of protection that Natasha puts around herself, specifically because she's a spy and doesn't want to get attached to anybody, with the exception of Clint, uh, Hawkeye, for those who are unsure of who I'm referring to, it is nice to see, like, oh, that she just sees them like as somebody like I can open up to and I think it it makes sense for her character as well because eventually she reveals her entire history as a result of the climax of this movie here where she dumps out all the information that shield has intelligence wise over the internet right which is something that I think we're going to see uh, I mean we've already seen parts of that be relevant in later movies but I think when we eventually get the black widow movie eventually that I, f- I feel like we'll see some more fallout from that. Yeah. I, I mean, that's why I have to watch this movie here. I'm just, it really made the itch for me. Like I really want to watch black widow. I really want to see that movie. Yeah. And we should have seen it by now, but understandably have it. Of course. No, I'm not, uh, I'm not being, I'm not going to be one of those entitled first world things where it's just like, I don't care. I wish I got a chance to see this movie. Like, no, there's, a pandemic still going on here and that's obviously takes precedent. And mm-hmm. so they reach, uh, the coordinates that are in New Jersey and it happens to be the training facility where Captain America literally became Captain America. Well, he was trained to become Captain America and we, we see kind of in Steve's mind's eye, his flashback to his younger scrawnier self, uh, being trained to become a soldier. Right, and this is where, like, you know, he he realizes, like, where they're at. And it just, I love the, the callbacks to his history. And, like, he stands and he, he sees, like, the portraits of Peggy and Howard Stark. And uh, then they realize, oh, okay, well, there's 
you know, this office, this area is already supposed to be a secret, but why is there another secret door inside of here? And that's when things get real interesting. Yes, because that's when they find the remains, I should say, of Armin Zola, the right-hand person to the Red Skull from the first Avenger movie. No longer a person, but a collection of thousands upon thousands of data mining computers from the 1970s that preserved his consciousness amongst data tapes. Right, and in the, in the first Avenger, they, they kind of do an homage to his comic character where he's basically just a human consciousness inside a robot for lack of a better terms. And when they just show you like inside a telescope, like it looked like he looks like that. And then here they've found a way to actually kind of uh, follow that up to go with that. And of course <laughs> you get a, you get the, shall we play a game line? <laughs> and she starts to explain it to Steve. He's like, no, I've seen it. I've, I understood that reference. Let me just pull out the Avengers gift for you. <laughs> Especially, I love a war. I love war games, and so like whatever there's a reference to war games, I think it's always a win. So I was happy about that. But this is when the real, the real turn of the story is that Hydra was not defeated at the end of the first Avenger, but Hydra has become fully uh, cognizant of the fact that if you try and take away the freedoms of people, people will fight back, and they'll do it in stride. So let's turn the world uh, to. Is such a dark and terrible place where they'll have to surrender their own freedom in the in the belief that they're doing the right thing because <gasps> Shield is Hydra. Yeah, pretty much. It's like Hydra's been a part of Shield since almost since the beginning. And without 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 Hydra, Shield doesn't grow to the level that it does. And like this scene, like the the detailing all the the history of Hydra having their hands in Shield. This scene truly, truly shocked me when I saw it, especially because, you know, in Civil War, they flat out say that Captain America, like he didn't know, but he really knew that Bucky killed Howard Stark, Howard and Maria Stark, and like he pretty much knew because of this because this montage here is shows that like basically as things that hydra has done includes the stark's car crash and the, the, we don't like it doesn't say you know it's not like they put it in big giant red letters winter soldier killed howard stark but that's what they're heavily implying and then later confirm in the next movie right and i remember i, I remember somebody actually literally gasped in the theater when this happened. And this is something that took me a while to get behind because I at first did not like that decision because at this point I'm like, oh, so I guess S.H.I.E.L.D.'s going to be over after this. You can't really, even when I was in the sitting there in the theater, like, okay, I guess they're going to have to get rid of S.H.I.E.L.D. here. And I wonder if this is just too much too fast. Well, do you still feel that way in hindsight? Well, no. But I mean... I was saying at the at the time, I like I really had to ponder that idea of like, okay, Shield being no more. I mean, it took a whole movie for it to get their own acronym in terms of the first Iron Man movie. But knowing just how integral Shield is to the history of Marvel Comics, to see them be done away in such few movies, at first this felt kind of. I I initially thought it was short sighted on Marvel's part. I questioned it, especially. Because of the TV show, which at this point was still very much connected. 
And it's like, how are they, how is the show going to continue on? And it has, but I mean, they're in their seventh season right now, seventh and final season as we record this, you know, they just had the fourth or fifth episode of the season last week. And it's, it's just like, how are they going to still have a show? They just killed the show. And in fact, a lot of people think going back and looking at season one, that this movie made the show because then like if you, if you rewatch season one, knowing the shield twist, you can see the hints of it that they weren't allowed to say or talk about. And it really kind of made the first season suffer a little bit until you know why they did some things they do. And that's because they were trying to keep this twist away. When, and and the, I mean, once, once the winter soldier comes out, season one of agents of shield, it gets real good real fast. Yeah. Cause I remember I, the only, the only bit of agents of shield I'd seen, I think was the pilot. Cause I know, I think we didn't directed the pilot if I'm not mistaken. I don't remember if he directed it or just produced. I, I'd honestly have to go look, but he was, he definitely was part of it. And like his brother was part of the show and stuff. I mean, cause it makes sense because we didn't cut his teeth on with television, whether it be Buffy, the vampire slayer, firefly angel and the dollhouse. So mm-hmm. it makes sense why he would be a part of that. And so we find out that Zola and Hydra's succeeded in creating shield. And they are actually data mining anybody that could be perceived as a threat. And that's what the helicarrier is going to be used for. And you're wondering like, why are they? Why is Zola pulling a, a James Bond mood right move right now by explaining his entire plot to the protagonist? Don't you know that it's only going to mean destruction for your plans? That's when Zola flips the script and says, "I've only been stalling you right now, and goodbye." Uh, uh, he probably should have said, "Goodbye, Mister Bond." Like it almost has that kind of tinge to it as they bomb the facilities, thereby killing Zola, but in the process of for the better betterment of uh, Hydra at that point. Yeah. And it, it's definitely villain monologue material for, I mean, absolutely. But then they use it. Like he's not just monologuing to monologue. Like you said, he's distracting them. He's slowing them down. So yes, I'm giving you information, but we're about to bomb the living crap out of you. So it doesn't matter. And I mean, it, this scene is a major turning point in the entire MCU. Definitely. And so they are able to survive the bombardment thanks to quick thinking and the use of the shield. They're able to hide themselves out from the debris that would be collapsing on the building itself. And once they've escaped, they're able to track down Sam Wilson again and go to his apartment saying, Hey, dude, we don't know who to trust and you're kind of an outsider, so we could use a hand right here. And I love the line here. It's just like, hey, we don't have everybody else. We're all alone in this. And like, I don't know if he says, like, you're not alone now, or you have somebody else with you. I forget what the exact line is, the verbiage. It's like, everybody's trying to kill us. Well, not everybody. There we go. Thank you. Um, Which just completely defines their friendship in a single line right there. Right, and we, uh, I think we skipped past it, but there, there was a scene earlier where Steve visited him at work at the VA to see one of, like, the sessions he was doing with veterans. And so it's like we had gotten a little bit of closeness there as well. And so it's like they have developed their – they've had this second meeting, not just the initial one when they were running, but this second meeting to kind of give Steve more opportunity to judge his character. And, yeah, it's a little bit of a leap of faith, especially for a guy who – 
has just been struggling with trusting everything he's been a part of since coming back. But at the same time, sometimes you just have to take that leap of faith because what else are you going to do? Right. And, and that VA hospital, that VA job will come to mean even more things in the future when we get to Avengers Endgame. Correct. Um, and so this is when Natasha and Steve formulate a plan. Like, okay, we need to get close to somebody in S.H.I.E.L.D. in order to find out what's going on. So they decide, like, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll go over to Sitwell, but we need we need backup. And so that's when Sam dis, uh, discloses that he's part of the Falcon program in the military. That's when Steve asks, hey, I thought you were a pilot. And that's when Sam retorts, like, I never said I was a pilot. And this is when we get to, we get the reprise of Gary Shandling's senator character uh, back from Iron Man 2 to, with having lunch with Sitwell. But this is when we have <laughs> one of the most memeable moments in the MCU when he leans into Sitwell after giving a hug and just whispers, Hail Hydra. <laughs> I love that so much. My my Marvel Squadcast co-host Brock, I, I, I've known him. Yeah, I've known him since college. Like he was in my wedding. <laughs> he, I I would just randomly text him Hell Hydra for no reason. In fact, I think I'm going to do it right now. <laughs> I'm just going to text it to him, and it just I would drive him nuts with it. And uh, love it. I, I am. I'm right now. I'm texting him Hell Hydra. <laughs> Obviously, the the best uses of your time right now is to do that. Um, which I love how it just became just like such a meme that it would just people would. Uh, see anybody whispering in a movie and they would just put Hail Hydra underneath it just to just to make a joke out of it. And mm-hmm. it but it also retcon, it doesn't retcon, it just kind of recontextualize a little bit like why Gary Shanley was such a dick to Tony Stark in Iron Man 2. Yeah, I mean, because he was Hydra. <laughs> you know? Oh, I just heard back from Brock. He did not appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I say that was the button to a good Sunday right there, so I don't think you should feel bad whatsoever. But yeah, uh, so... Sam, like, he shows, like, he calls it a resume, like, information on the Falcon program. And Natasha, like, recognizes. She's like, I don't remember the name of it offhand, but, like, she mentions a mission. She's like, wait, that was you? And that kind of builds credibility that the Black Widow has heard of the work he's done. She may not have known his name, but she knows of the work he's done. And that kind of it builds credibility, not just with Steve, but with the audience, I think. Right, because because we find that, like, that he has a jetpack with wings that is the most comic booky thing about this movie that could come off as a little silly to some people but that's the whole thing in the commentary tracks that they they recognize the fact yeah it's a comic book movie it is fantasy it is science fiction but they want to be as realistic as possible within the confines of a comic book movie and they go to great lengths to illustrate that yeah i i, I have to say I never liked his look in this movie where he's just wearing his regular clothes with the Falcon uh, flight suit over the top. It's like, could you not have put on like a jumpsuit or something that would look a little bit better? And thank goodness they gave him an actual proper costume in the later installments. Right. And I know people still have issues with the costume thinking like it's somehow the Russo brothers have issues with costumes. They don't want to go full out comic booky with their designs. Yeah, I, I I think in 2014, you could maybe get away with that criticism, maybe. I mean, other than Captain America's in costume for much of the movie, you know, he's got the, the, his, the costume he has at the beginning of the movie, fantastic costume, which is heavily inspired from a time actually when Steve was 
basically leading shield and not the acting captain America in the comics. And then you see him in the first Avengers costume later. I just, I, I don't know. I maybe understand that criticism. Maybe at the time this movie came out, I don't think you can say that now in 2020 after seeing the rest of the work they've turned in. Right. I mean, because you think at that point there, like, the MCU was worried about using the word magic in any of their movies, let alone say the word, let alone um, describe it. Like when we see, which is funny because this is when they mentioned Doctor Strange for the first time, right? <laughs> and then when we see Scarlet Witch in the the uh, mid credit scene, and when we see, even though they're technically mutants, this is like they're mir their this is the age of miracles as they were described as. Yeah, they were. Uh, Baron von Strucker was using the uh, the Mind Stone to basically experiment on people, and the twins were the two people who survived. I predict a retcon that says they survived because they're mutants. Yeah, because this is a time when there were two Quicksilvers in the world. Coming up on it, yeah, and they weren't allowed to. Uh, Marvel was not allowed to use the word mutant. In, in fact, when. Whichever comes next to be it, Falcon and Winter Soldier, if that hits its release date, or Black Widow, like whatever the next thing that comes out, that'll be the first installment of the MCU that would be allowed to use that word. I guess they could have put in a line of dialogue for Endgame, but they would have only had like a month to do it. And so, but now they don't have those problems. I do fully expect to find out that Wanda is a mutant. And yeah, it'll be a retcon, but it'll be a retcon I'm on board with. Right. And, like, I could totally see Magneto being Sokovian in the future if they want to go down that route for the MCU's... Uh, uh, maybe. Um, I mean, I could see it, but I I personally would prefer that uh, Wanda's mom was Sokovian. That's where she grew up. But I, I feel like Magneto's German history is so important to him. Right. That I, I, I don't, wouldn't necessarily take that away. Gotcha. Because I know later in this week I am... For Please Rewind, the other podcast I do, uh, we're covering the first X-Men movie. Nice. Yeah, and the fact that, like, it's such a perfect reason why Magneto the way he is, making him a Holocaust survivor, it's kind of hard to top that, like, going forward, like, in the MCU. Like, how do you update that without making him ancient in the MCU, you know? I have no problem with saying it. part of his mutation is him aging slowly. Like, that is more than enough for me. <laughs> um, Eric, why do you age so slowly? Pure magnetism. That's what I'll say. Well, yeah, I mean, I get the joke, but, you know, the X-Men did have a thing for a while of secondary mutations that people started developing. His could simply be slower aging. Like, there are certain characters in the X-Men that I feel like need like you could introduce today and that's fine but other characters i think need their history and i i just feel like magneto's one of them i mean who knows play this back to me when they do something totally different and i'm on board with it but as of right now i'm not maybe they'll come up with something different that i like but i'm not thinking of i can't come up with something that i like more than keeping his german history right like like you could say like he's bosnian and he survived that um which could be possible um i mean i guess really it's less german history and more like the jewish history as part of the holocaust and maybe that included sokovia i mean 
maybe. Right. At this point, we're just speculating here. Sure. Um, yeah, but also, like, the second hand, the second mutation's in there. It's kind of like how X-Men and Last Stand, they just suddenly <clears throat> introduced the ranking system, like, the class system. Like, oh, like, you're you're a class five mutant. Like, that's how powerful you are. And it's like, well... They've used some of the ranking stuff in the comics, too, though. Right. Like Omega-level mutants. But that's the thing. Like, in the first two X-Men movies, like, that wasn't a thing. But then they started using that as if that was always the case in The Last Stand. That's one of the many inconsistencies between those three movies. Yeah, well, that third one. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, inconsistencies in the Fox X-Men movies? (laughs) Who would have thought, right? (laughs) I think the best continuity they have is with Deadpool. (laughs) So, and I don't mean the Wolverine Origins Deadpool, but I mean the Deadpool movies. I mean, he would have been such a great Marine if he didn't have that mouth. That's all I have to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Origins Wolverine's got the worst Wolverine claws. There, I said it. They look so goddamn cheap in that movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, you are forgiven. I, I, I know it's a nitpicky thing, but I'm just like that looks. They just look so cheap. Anyway, uh, so they interrogate Sitwell, and that's when Sitwell realizes, oh shit, um, Hydra's gonna do some real damage and murder possibly millions of people when they launch the uh, helicarriers. And that's when he decides to turn coat and help him out to stop it. But uh, the Winter Soldier has different plans for Sitwell that come to a screeching halt. Yeah, Winter, Winter Soldier attacks Sitwell is no more. And we have another one of those scenes that is, ranks pretty high up there on the list of favorite action scenes in the MCU for a lot of people. Yeah, the entire fight on the highway that turns into a, a foot chase and everything. And it becomes a kind of a three-way battle between Sam Wilson, Natasha, and Steve Rogers, all fighting their respective members of Hydra. And how they're literally throwing everything at the kitchen sink at these three people trying to kill them and it's not doing it. Yeah, you know, uh, when Winter Soldier, like, attacks their car and just rips off the steering wheel, like, rips it out of the car. I love that scene, like, the look on Falcon's face. And then just that shot where Steve grabs both Natasha and Sam, jumps out of the car and just lands on his shield, on the door, on his shield as they slide to a stop. And then you get all the big, the, the fist fighting, the gun fighting. It, it really is just a spectacular scene. I have to agree. I mean, like, the only, like, if you want to be really nitpicky is when they finally have that do with the minigun firing at Steve. Like, and Steve's charging at him. He's using a shield to deflect all the rounds firing at him. Somebody can be really, really shitty and say, like, maybe you should aim for his knees. His shield's not that big. Yeah, I mean, I, I've thought that with Captain America before. It's like, if they aimed better. But, I mean, that's kind of like uh, Stormtroopers in Star Wars. You know, it's like, ah, if they aim just a little bit better. It's like, oh, Finn isn't really a Stormtrooper. He never was, because he actually hits his target. Precisely. And, I mean, like, but also it gets to the point that Han Solo doesn't even have to look at his targets to shoot people. He just look. he can just shoot people over his shoulder like he's RoboCop. Um, He taught his kid to do that too, apparently. Yeah, and he's got the solo slide and everything when he slides in and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I I find this set piece to be absolutely wonderful because it's not just Steve saving the day. Everybody has their moments to show that they're exceptional at what they do. I think that's why I really like it and that Natasha's able to hold her own against the Winter Soldier even for a little bit even though she does take a, around the shoulder in the process of doing so. Yeah, but she shoots him in the face, too. And, I mean, the only reason he didn't go down is because of his goggles at the time. 
And this is when they say, wear eyewear if you're doing anything dangerous. It makes sense, people. Yeah. And then, of course, he takes it off, and so we get a better look at his face. You know, we got a little bit earlier when we saw him meeting with Alexander Pierce, but we get the best look of him yet in this. And he still has that mask on. You know, he's preparing for social distancing, I guess. (laughs) But it... I mean, so yeah, like when you say they all hold their own, absolutely. Like, no, Natasha, she's not as good as he is at this stuff. She can hold her own. And she, if, if not for those goggles, she would have won. Definitely. And I even love that moment where it's the, all the Hydra agents firing at them. They're, they're on top of the freeway and they're firing down. And the Winter Soldier is walking behind them. And there's the one soldier just turns around and just gives his M16 to him. And just like yep. nonchalantly, he just drops his grenade launcher and grabs that machine gun and decides to pursue him. Uh, uh, Captain Rogers, like he's a a villain in a slash movie, he doesn't have to run; he just has to walk. He'll catch up. Pretty much that. I mean, that sums it up. I mean, he just he he's got that menacing walk down. I mean that that's that's I think it's a prerequisite for a good villain that you, you got a menacing walk, and it eventually leads to them coming to blows physically and when maybe the second most famous shot in the entire movie when steve blocks the winter soldier's punch with the shield and like the like mm-hmm. the sound design sounds like a church bell being rung like the kadoong as it reverberates the sound of the blow right those two fist fighting like i remember that very vividly and the knife work as he would as Winter Soldier would transfer the knife he was using from one hand to the other in the middle of combat. To quote Jason Todd under the Red Hood, we're just a couple of walking arsenals, aren't we? And that's the exact thing I get from here when that he just keeps pulling out weapons to try and kill Steve and Steve just has to keep taking away from like a toddler with too many toys. Like, no, 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 no. And I'm going to beat you down with my shield right here. And I'm going to mess up the grooves of your arm here by jamming my shield into it. Yeah, and... You know, Natasha, I mean, she's not without her toys as well. Like, she's got that, I don't know what you call it, that little disc thing that she threw on Winter Soldier's arm that, like, incapacitated it until he was able to knock it off. So it's like, they've definitely all got their their gadgets. To quote the Joker, where do they get these wonderful toys? Shield, in her case. (laughs) Well, fine. I was being rhetorical and trying to be funny there, but you had to be liberal. (laughs) I did, I did. Winter Soldiers came from Hydra, just to be clear. (laughs) Moving on, and so this is when Steve is able to rip off the mask of Winter Soldier, and this is when, what a twist, number three, uh, or number two, I should say, that Bucky is actually the Winter Soldier. Yeah, this was one of those moments that, like, you, you heard you heard your crowd, like, your audience gasping at the, at, you know, opening weekend viewpoints, and it's like, surprised my dad because he didn't know, and it's like, I, 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 of course, knew because of the comics, but... It's still a great moment when it happens. And the look on Steve's face is, is just really well acted by Chris Evans, I think. Yeah, because he's totally gobsmacked and he's taken aback by it. And it literally does stop him in his tracks right there. And it confuses Bucky when he says Bucky. And like the Winter Soldier's like, who the hell is Bucky? And Bucky pulls Jason Bourne and disappears. This is when all of S.H.I.E.L.D. like pretty much shows up to arrest um, Falcon, uh, Black Widow, and Captain America. They take him to custody and they're going to um, drive him out to a deserted place and 
kill him and bury him. But that before that happens, this is when Maria Hill has made her appearance by rescuing them after Nick Fury had called her prior to his um, assassination attempt earlier in the movie, which they use her lightsaber to cut their way out of the uh, vehicle they were tr- being transported in. And this is when we get a cameo from Joe Russo when they meet up in, at their little hideaway. And finally, this is when twist number three, Nick Fury is still alive. Yep, and who's surprised? I know a few people, but I feel like you really... I feel like that's one that really people shouldn't be surprised at. I do think maybe if they had kept him dead for this and brought him back in a different movie, I'd maybe be a little more on board with like the, oh, death is meaningless thing. But it's like, nah, it's been a half hour. It's been 45 minutes or whatever. It's like, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. Like, through the fact that it happens within the confines of the same movie, you can go with it. You can buy it a little bit. A little bit more, anyway. If he just came back from a different movie and with no explanation or anything. And so they come up with a plan because they realize the helicarriers are going to be launched the following day and, or later that day, I should say, and they're all linked up. And so they need to go into each helicarrier and disconnect their, their system that, that you, that unite, unites all three of them in order to incapacitate them to turn their own targets against themselves. And so, this is when Cap gives the orders, like, this is what we're going to do. And Fury's like, all right, I'm following your orders for the first time. Yeah, because Cap's like, no, there's no saving S.H.I.E.L.D. S.H.I.E.L.D., Hydra, it's all done, it all goes, all of it. And it's like, this whole experience has basically taught Captain America that his feelings of unease, of being uncomfortable at the beginning of the movie were well-founded. He should have been uncomfortable because freaking Hydra was running the show. Yeah, and the fact that under the, the very nose of everybody that's been part of S.H.I.E.L.D., like it, uh, Agent Carter didn't know, Nick Fury didn't know, members of the uh, council didn't know, with the exception of Pierce. And, you know, all of it has to go. We got we to get, we have to tear the walls down if they have to. And so before they do that, we get the Stan Lee cameo as a guard at the Smithsonian thinking he's so fired because Steve has stolen his original costume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, Stanley. I like his cameos. So do I. And like, I, I had totally forgotten about this. And so, and since I have not watched that many Marvel movies since like his passing, I, it just hit me a little, a little different. Like, Oh, I forgot these, these were a thing. It's not, it didn't hit me as much as into the spider verse. Like that one destroyed me. That one is real hard. I mean, he's actually in that movie a couple times, but End of the Spider-Verse is just a gem of a movie. And yes, that, the Stanley cameo in that is it's real hard to... Uh, I mean, he just tells Miles that the suit, it'll fit eventually. It always does. And uh, such a heavy moment. And, and I think it's because, obviously, they didn't know... It's just hindsight about the the context of that scene is it hits a lot different since his passing, especially his first lines like "I'm gonna miss him." And you're like, "Oh, jeez, mm-hmm. yeah." Why don't you that... just kick me in the nerds while you're at it? Emotions. His his loss and the the one two loss of him and Steve Ditko, like the creators of my favorite comic book character, really hurt. And I know ne- I never got the chance to meet Stan Lee, but I, I he was at a comic con that I was at, but I, I did get to see a panel at least of him. So I'm very thankful that I had that experience. So while I may not have gotten to 
you know, meet the man and tell him personally, uh, thank you for his work. I, I at least got to be in his presence and hear some stories. And, uh, and no, he, he wasn't the sole creator of these characters, but he was a massive part of their creation. And I will always be grateful for that. Definitely. I mean, obviously he's not the sole creator. I mean, just ask like the aforementioned Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I know there was contention between Kirby and Lee. That's legendary at this point. Sure. Um, just sidebar, did they ever bury the hatchet? Were they, they ever able to become friends uh, before Kirby's passing? I don't know the answer to that. Internet people, let us know. Um, I got within 15 feet of Stan Lee. The very first New York Comic Con I went to, I forget. Um, it was the year that the Green Hornet was coming out. That's the year, what was okay. it? 2010? Sure. I don't know. I never saw it. Yeah, because that was like the big exhibit there. That and The Walking Dead was there with the cast. This is before the show premiered, so like nobody was paying attention to them. Oh, I was. <laughs> Just to be clear, I, I wasn't at that con, but I was hyped for The Walking Dead when that started. It's a shame I don't watch it anymore because it lost its way. But that's another story. Yes, that's for another day. Um, and so... Since the Rooster Brothers had gotten their start pretty much in TV, obviously directing the pilot for Arrested Development and directing a lot of community, mm-hmm. uh, we have a community cast member show up here as another uh, one of the members of S.H.I.E.L.D. when Steve Rogers takes control of one of the operating systems or operating uh, rooms in S.H.I.E.L.D. and makes a declaration like, hey, Strike Team or Hydra, I don't believe all of you guys are Hydra. If you fight for what S.H.I.E.L.D. really stands for, stand with us and help us stop this. And so literally causes a, he pretty much. Okay. This scene, you know how I said there's some action beats that I will go back and just watch by themselves. Yes. That is true of this scene as well. I will just go back. Like this is my favorite Steve Rogers, like inspirational monologue, whatever you want to call it speech. And the, the price of freedom is high and it's a price I'm willing to pay. And if I'm the only one, so be it. But I don't think I am yeah, paraphrased there, but it's like, I love that moment. Captain America, that guy does the He does the speech like nobody else. And for me, this is like the height of it. Yeah. I mean, I know friend of the show and friend of ours, like his favorite Captain America speech and just comics in general is the speech between Cap and Thanos in, I think it was just, it's just called the Infinity Gauntlet. We said, like, if there's one mm-hmm. person standing in front of you, that's what they're willing to do. Like, I know, I'm sorry, I'm butchering the speech here. I know Jamie's pulling his hair out for this. He is, but he we actually just talked about that moment <laughs> not not that long ago as of the time we record this on Twitter. And you're right, it is a moment from Infinity, Infinity Gauntlet that is just his favorite cap moment. And it's a great one. I, I mean, just some characters are, like, built for that inspirational speech. And it, I don't, there may be others who approach his level, but I don't know if there's anyone with maybe Superman who could top the inspirational speech that Captain America can do. I mean, cause that's why they're so similar and people say that Superman's hard to write for sometimes, which he has his own baggage, but we don't have to get into that today. But, and so this is when the shield members are starting to question like maybe we shouldn't launch these helicarriers and this is when uh rumlo is really grilling that one tech and just looks so scary right there like 
and on the commentary track says like, yeah, Frank was very scary on set this day when he had to intimidate this, uh, the IT member here. And I'm like, yeah, I can imagine Frank Grillo being an intimidating presence, especially in that moment. Yeah. You know, it's funny because like he was in, uh, uh, Prison Break, a show that I'm a big fan of, and he was not anywhere near. Like he, he's since bulked way up and like gotten in massive shape and stuff. And it's like I remember when I first saw you, you were not nearly this intimidating, but you are now. Wow. And but yeah, even there, like the IT guy, like the the guy running the basically who can flip the switch to turn on Project Insight. He's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And Sharon just pulls her gun and it's like, well, Captain's orders. <laughs> love it. Absolutely love it. And then it turns into the OK Corral in pretty much the main lobby of S.H.I.E.L.D. right there. And the First Strike members and the members of S.H.I.E.L.D. is starting to a, a gunfight. And it becomes a, a kind of a shit show because they don't know who to shoot at. And I do like the fact that they bring back this one S.H.I.E.L.D. member who to launch Project Insight to be back in Age of Ultron. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that that same guy does show back up. And that that's great. Because I was rewatching it uh, today, and I'm like, wait, is that the guy in Age of Ultron who's on the helicarrier with uh, Nick Fury? And it turns out it was. Yep, sure is. And this is when we have the three-pronged attack. So we have Natasha, who's gone undercover as one of the Security Council members to apprehend um, Alexander Pierce. We have Falcon running uh, defense of from the air. For a cap, and cap is laying waste to anybody who gets in his way, and that's when Falcon asks, "Like, hey, how do we know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? If they're <laughs> shooting at you, they're bad." Yeah, Falcon's got several great moments. There's that one of them. There's the one earlier where he's like, "Hey, I go where he goes, just slower." <laughs> or the, the people who fire at him usually end up firing at me. Or after that speech that I just love so much, he says something like, "Did you write that down first?" <laughs> Uh, I mean, he has, like, maybe my favorite line in uh, Captain America Civil War when Winter Soldier and uh, Falcon see Spider-Man crawling across the glass for the first time. He's <laughs> yes, like, who the hell is that? Got everybody's got a gimmick. <laughs> yes. I. Uh, part of why I... The cast of the Captain America movies is my favorite cast of the MCU movies. So, like, you've got the cast from Thor, from Guardians, whatever. The Cap cast, like, the Cap group of characters. And that's part of why, like, the little glimpses we've got of them, like, in Civil War, is I am so, so excited for Falcon and Winter Soldier. Like, that, Spider-Man aside, because Spider-Man is in his own tier in my eyes, like, that is the project that I am the most looking forward to for Phase 4. Like, movies, TV shows... Falcon and Winter Soldier, that's it. Exactly. And I, I know I'm not a Disney Plus subscriber, but I know whenever we get a full-on trailer, not just a Super Bowl trailer for it, I'm just going to be like, all right, fine, I'm going to open my wallet and finally subscribe to the streaming service. I know... Does that mean you haven't seen Mandalorian then yet either? I didn't say that. Well, of course. I mean, you haven't officially seen the Mandalorian yet. So what you'll need to do is watch that as well. Yes. I mean, like, a VHS ta- I've seen The Mandalorian on VHS tapes. That's what happened. Yeah, yeah, sure. It was, I hear you. It was at a financially tough time. That's why I have not signed up for it. I I might be able to do that. It was between that and another streaming service, and I had to make a decision. Um, I'm not judging any v- any VHS tapes. VHS tapes are what they are. Exactly. I am... I, I, I just... I, I love the Falcon character. I love Bucky. You know, you know like I said earlier, I love the sidekick type heroes and Bucky may not be the teen, but he's still like 
and even Falcon, they're still like the sidekicks to Captain America. And getting, you know, a TV show of six episodes or whatever it is, it's going to be so much fun for me to watch. I cannot wait for it. But how do you feel about this final set piece, the climax of this movie here, of them trying to bring down the three helicarriers? Um, I mean, it's great. I love I love seeing Falcon fly. I love the flying. I, at one point, uh, Steve jumps, and he's like, Sam, I need a lift. Okay, just tell me when. He goes, oh, I just did, and he's already falling. <laughs> it's like, I, 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 that stuff, uh, you get Steve or you get Falcon versus, uh, Rumlo a little bit here in a fight. And then of course the Captain America Bucky stuff. And, you know, earlier there's a brief flashback of Captain America right after his mom died, uh, back in the past when he's still skinny, Steve and Bucky tells him I'm with you to the end of the line. And Captain America uses that line again here in the present day and in, Winter Soldier to to kind of help snap him out of it. And I love the callback, though I was real worried come in game that that line was going to come back up. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to lose two of my favorite characters as jerks. <laughs> but it didn't work out that way, as we know. But it, no, I mean, it's, it, it's a great action set piece. I, I don't know if I find it quite as thrilling or as exciting as either the highway battle or... Uh, the elevator fight to the Captain America escape, but it's not that this is bad so much as those are just so great, but it's like even the less exciting action set pieces are still a lot of fun to watch. I guess that's the problem with like escalating tension. They like how, like where's the ceiling for you? And it's kind of hard to continue to top yourself. Like I brought up like that on certain horror movies, like there's certain horror set pieces that like, like you think of like the opening of Scream, where it's so iconic that some people have brought criticism against that movie, saying that it's hard to top that opening set piece for the rest of the movie. Because like, how can you do that? And I think it's because this move, the climax, is far more emotional rather than physical between Steve and Bucky. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they were trying to go for. I guess you're just your mileage may vary in terms of execution as being a sufficient uh, climax for the story or not well it's i mean the russos kind of they've done things a little differently with their climaxes with their battles and it's uh, sometimes it's the bigger escalated battle like this one with lots of characters lots of crazy things going on and you know great moments and highlights for every single different character and in other times you get ones like what we have at the end of the next installment in this little mini series we're doing that we'll talk about where they're much more smaller in scale and personal in this case, again, I don't have any complaints about this action set piece. It's just, it's not the elevator scene. You know, the elevator scene is again, iconic. I would not say that about this, this battle upon the insight helicarriers. Right. I mean, I think like the highlights for me for it is like, when we see some shield pilots want to give, they want to run offense for Cap, and that's when they run into the Winter Soldier, who literally tears them apart. Yeah, he like throws one of them or kicks one of them into one of their jets to take it out. It's like so vicious. Yeah, like it's like akin to Indiana Jones and like the uh, force from the Nazi into the big propeller. Like it's like ooh. That's rough. Or when he picks up a grenade, throws into one of the other Quinjets, and that blows up. Also, it feels weird saying Quinjet because I feel like the Fantastic Four should be around here somewhere. But what? That's 
But Quinjet was always an Avengers thing, though. Really? Okay. Am I just am I just yeah, crossing? Yeah, the, they have the Fantastic Car. There we go. Okay, I'm just crossing streams there. Excuse me, I am a layman when it comes to certain Marvel titles. I apologize. Well, in your defense, we're still waiting on that first great Fantastic Four movie. Yeah, I'm so glad I don't hold my breath. Otherwise, I'd, I'd be gone a long time ago. Um, mm-hmm. I love, like, the only, like, I guess, downside to this set piece is that, that Maria Hill is, just seems kind of just rele- re- relegated to, in the words of Ned in Spider-Man Homecoming, she's a woman in a chair. You know, most most characters in the MCU... I like more than their comics counterpart. Like there's several characters that I'm like, you've heightened this, my appreciation for this character. Maria Hill is not one of those. Her comic version, I think is a better character. And that's no slight against Colby Smothers, Smolders, you know, but it, it, I don't think it's her performance. I think it's what she's been given. And I think they just, they just haven't given her that much to do. Really across all, all I mean, the biggest thing she's ever had to do was that chase scene at the beginning of the Avengers, you know. And it's like they haven't done that much with her since she's shown up a few times, including on Agents of Shield. But we just haven't—they haven't done like her character is not the intimidating badass that Maria Hill is in the comics. You know, like how in How I Met Your Mother, she said Robin says um, Robin Sparkles. Yes, that like the eighties took a long time to get to Canada. Maybe that's the same thing for her character in the MCU. Eventually, she'll get the her great set piece to herself. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the character. I think it's a good, strong character in the comics. It's just she's one that I don't feel like they just haven't made that translation into the movies for. Her. Yeah, uh, it's unfortunate, and so. Pierce is killed by Nick Fury um, after he kills the council. All the information is dropped onto the internet, and Steve was able to turn the helicarriers against themselves, and they destroy they destroy themselves. And Rogers is seemingly killed after being incapacitated by the Winter Soldier, and he falls into the uh, Potomac. That's and he dies, and they bring him back, and death means nothing to Marvel. We didn't see him actually die here. <laughs> no, he was underwater for like five seconds. <laughs> no, yeah, like there's a bigger question in days of future past, like how long was Wolverine underwater when he was finally rescued by Mystique? Like oh, that's a bigger. Don't... I like that movie, but that that ending does not hold hold up, <laughs> just because it doesn't mesh at all. But Fox doesn't care about continuity. That's established. Marvel does. Right. I, I think they just they removed it from all the dictionaries that Fox like continuity doesn't mean a thing there. And so, yeah, and so Nick Fury is goes on the run. Um, Agent Romanoff is now a public figure. And that's when they decide, like, hey, this is when uh, Cap and Sam are going to run their own special ops now to try and stop S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, and try and stop well, Hydra, I should say. And the movie ends. And so your uh, final thoughts on Captain America, the Winter Soldier. I had a little bit of a cognitive dissonance when I saw this movie because I thought when I saw 2012 The Avengers that I would never see a movie again that would, like, at least a comic book movie that would, like, top that for me. Like, that experience, I thought, would never be matched. And I was really like, holy crap, I think I like this more than The Avengers. And to this day, I do. It's... I don't at the top of my rankings. I don't. I don't have this at the top. 
but only because there are three other movies that I think are even better than this one. I love this movie. I adore this movie. And it is absolutely in the, if you tell me this is your favorite movie, I get it kind of category. Like I totally get it. And I, I get the appeal of it. And like, I mean, when the Russos came out and did this movie, I did not know that their comic book work was going to mean to me what it would grow to mean. But, oh my gosh, talk about hitting the ground running. What a heck of a start with this movie that this movie had. And they just really, I mean, yeah, sure, I've got a couple little minor criticisms here, nitpicks there, Falcon's costume or Maria Hill's, what they do with her. But in the grand scheme of things, the things that I feel like really matter, it delivered. And, I mean, it's it's such a fun great movie to watch and I don't mean fun like oh I'm laughing it's so hilarious I mean it's definitely funny at times but I just mean like it's a joy to take in this movie and so when you when you asked me about doing this like I had already been kind of thinking okay I want to fit at a minimum like this movie and Civil War in before Falcon and Winter Soldier just because I want to get that Sam and Bucky stories you know, it's like, yeah, they're in Infinity War and they're in Endgame, but their roles are quite a bit smaller and, like, it's not a, about them the same as it is, as these two movies are. And so, eh, final thoughts on The Winter Soldier? It's freaking phenomenal. That's what my, I mean, I mean, I love it. I absolutely love this movie. I have to co-sign there because, much like you, I think nothing was going to be able to top the Avengers, like, that was the peak. There's no way you can do that. But like you, I feel like this one, this and the first Avengers movie, um, battle for my number one spot. It depends on the day. It depends on what kind of mood I am in. Because as much as I enjoy like Age of Ultron, Infinity War, and Endgame, like you, you never forget your first. And seeing that for the first time, the the Avengers coming together and that the war cry from the Tatari and that huge 360 degree shot of the Avengers all together for the first time. I think about it, it still sends uh, goosebumps up and down my arms. However, this movie comes out after the divisive Iron Man 3 and the sort of lukewarm Thor of the Dark World. You wonder like, oh, has Marvel peaked? Could they match the the excellence of the Avengers, and then you have Guardians of the Galaxy about these nobodies that can make a movie out of them. Like, it seemed like, all right, maybe, maybe the Marvel's flashed the pan, and the Winter Soldier came out and proved us all wrong. Like, whoa, okay, they're doing something different here. There's something, a very espionage fueled movie, and it's very realistic, but just using a combo character as a vehicle for it, and it was just mind blowing for me. And like, as soon as this movie was over, I really had to fight the urge not just to grab Civil War and throw it in because I was that jazz. I just wanted to continue to watch this story play out uh-huh. today. Yep, <laughs> yep. I, 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 re- I mean, I watched this when we first talked about this a couple weeks ago. Is like the next day or two is when I, wa- I was like, all right, I'm going to throw it in. And I'm going to watch it, and I have purposely held off on Civil War until after we had this discussion. I was like, no, I want to do Winter Soldier first. Let's put that one in the books, and then we'll move on to. Well, a movie that many consider divisive and for me is, uh, you're going to hear me say this a lot and then over this series, one of my absolute favorite movies. Right, because we get to the year 2016, the year of the um, 
the versus movies, the versus uh, movies and TV shows. Yeah, yeah, because Daredevil season two was out that year too, and when you had Daredevil and Punisher, um, and connected or not, it's not. Daredevil is still a wonderful show, and it, it was it, that was between Civil War, BBS, and Daredevil. Like that was very much the hero versus hero year, and yeah, I mean, my goodness, Captain Amer- Captain America: Civil War is a very very special movie for me we'll talk about that on the next one though of course and yes this is one of my all-time favorite marvel movies it's one of my all-time favorite comic book movies and it continues to do so and after rewatching it for this episode it just further cemented that idea and i absolutely adore this movie i had no idea that the russo brothers would continue to thrive and expand their abilities as filmmakers as as the franchise would go on but we'll get that as we go further now uh, Brent, if you want people to follow you on social media and your podcast, if they're unaware of you, where can they find you on the interwebs? Uh, sure. If you go to squadcastmedia.com, you can find the two shows that I'm a part of. Fans Without Borders, that's weekly. And then Marvel Squadcast, that's eh, every three to four weeks we we throw together an episode of that one. Uh, I figure that'll pick up a little bit more when some more of the movie stuff comes out. But uh, And then on Twitter, um, I'm at Brintac Prime. So feel free to tell me the things that you agree with. Feel free to tell me the things you don't agree with. I will be perfectly happy to read all opinions. Yes, he has the patience of a saint when it comes to that. Um, I don't add that sometimes, but I try to do my damnedest. And if you want to yell at me or agree with me about certain things, you can find me on Twitter at TimothyRooney2, my Instagram at TRooney1012, and my YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions. So you can go to YouTube.com slash Through the Lens Productions, through as if you're going through something. We can find that all my short films are up there. My latest short film, Run Out of the, my Run Out of the Basement, is up. And I know, Brent, you recently shared it on Twitter, which, I again, I thank you for. A lot of people sure. seem to be really enjoying it. So give that a check out. and Check that out, I should say. Subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode, as well as check out my other podcast, Please Rewind, the RF4RM Retro Show. Much like how Brent is with Fans Without Borders, that show I'm far more consistent with when it comes to releasing episodes in comparison to this show. That's like a weekly or bi-weekly show, depending on how the schedules work out. That's where I talk about movies when it comes to their anniversaries, with usually Guy Milks and Jamie Drooly. And like I mentioned, we were talking about X-Men. That's going to be our next upcoming episode. Uh, Brent, thank you for taking time out of your night to talk uh, Captain America the Winter Soldier with me. Absolutely. Now i got to watch Civil War. Yes. Come back next time as we continue to talk about geek and pop culture. And don't forget to subscribe to the show, and we'll be speaking to you soon.